we're just so excited about what we're going to hear about today. Um, I, w I do want to say if you're a visitor to this community, to Trinity, if you're here just for the conference, I just want to extend a special welcome to you. Thank you so much. Our home is your home, so please make yourself at home. We have snacks and coffee out there. If you are trying to do some wayfinding or have a question, please find some with a, someone with a red badge, and they'll be happy to direct you around and help you find what you need. Our mission here at Trinity is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness, which is to say that in the way that we relate to ourselves, to God, to other people, and to the world around us, we want to look more and more like Jesus. And we know that this requires intentionality. It requires that we are doing this together. It's a communal effort, and it requires the help of the Holy Spirit. But what we also know is that none of us decide to follow Jesus or intend towards becoming a certain kind of person in general, starting with a blank slate. You see, so much of who we are today is due to the formation we received in our childhood. What I received as a child, what you received as a child, and whether it's helpful or unhelpful, that formation largely was kind of chosen for us. Uh, we don't get to pick our family or our parents or, or our community or our collective story. Um, and the stories that play out in that space, in that vulnerable space of childhood, they form much of how it is that we relate to ourselves, to the people around us, to God, and to the world, particularly our stories uh, where there's harm. So at Trinity, we believe that if we want to be the kinds of folks who are becoming more like Jesus, doing the things he would do if he were us, or to use Kathy's words, if we want to join Jesus increasingly in breathing life into this beautiful but shattered world, starting with our own hearts, starts here. Well, I just think there's an invitation to be increasingly curious about what's already operating under the hood of our lives, the sort of operating system uh, we've been given, per se. Said another way, it's, there's just an invitation to be more curious about our story. And for this reason and so many other reasons, I'm so thankful for the work of the Allender Center, for Dan and Kathy specifically, and for so many voices who are blazing a trail in this realm of story. Um, a little bit about Kathy she received her MACP in psychology in 2007 from the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. She's co-founder of the Allender Center, co-author with Dan of the book Redeeming Heartache. She's also a story work coach and a wonderful speaker, as you'll hear in just a moment. I've personally sat under Kathy's teaching, and I, I was just telling her before coming up here you know, through the certificate programs at the Allender Center, there's so many wonderful, intelligent voices. And when you first are exposed to this content, it hits you like a fire hose and your brain is just spinning. And in my year, Kathy was the first speaker who had slides <laughs> with organized thoughts. And it was, <laughs> such, it was such a blessing to this Enneagram One's heart and soul. <laughs> So, Kathy, I will be eternally grateful for that. Um, so, I want to pray and then invite Kathy to come up. God, we thank you. 
God, that you are a God of story, that you tell long stories. And Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would come. We need you. Come, and as you did before the grand story began, would you hover over this room? Would you hover over the good work that is still to be begun and continued in this room? Would you hover over the hearts and minds of the good men and women gathered here, God? And God, I pray that today would be the continuation or maybe even the beginning of a turn towards kindness and curiosity for our hearts, God, so that we can find healing, so that we can experience more goodness, so that we can avail more of who we are to you, to your love, and ultimately, God, so that we can be increasingly the kinds of people that leave in our wake folks who have experienced something of the kingdom of God, the goodness of your kingdom, your love. God, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Kathy. Thank you. Hi. I have coffee because it's um, 9.15 here, 6.15 my time. I feel like I'm looking pretty good. I feel put together for having woken up at 3 a.m. my time and into humidity. <laughs> like, I don't know if you know anything about Seattle, but it, the weather turns. It's like, you know, it's horrible until July 4th. And then all of a sudden, it's beautiful. It's like 75 degrees, no humidity, no, zero rain. And then, and then you start around September, you're like, okay, it's going to turn. And you don't, you don't know. And so you're looking at your watch or whatever you use to, to look at the weather. And, and all of a sudden, you see like sun, sun, sun. And then you see rain. And you're like, that's it. <laughs> like from then on, it's, it's into the dark. And, and it's, just, it's just what's true. So, so Seattle it had this incredible fall, and we were, we were undone by how beautiful it was into October. And then all of a sudden, about a week and a half ago, you just you saw the 10-day forecast is dark, <laughs> rain, and about 42 degrees, 45, something like that. And everyone just goes, okay, okay. Right? There's a reason why we're known for coffee. It's because <laughs> there's just not a whole lot else like getting you up in the morning when it's dark and gray. And it gets dark like, or, and then stays. It's just, it's a thing. I'm telling you that because Seattle is increasing in housing prices and you just, no, you shouldn't move there. <laughs> Whatever fantasy you may have about hipster Seattle, I'm telling you none of us leave our house for nine months out of the year. And then we leave our house and we go crazy for like four months when it's sunny out where, and it's like light out until 11. And so you see everyone all of a sudden by the end of summer being like, <sighs> like I can't pack up and unpack my gear one more time. But you feel bad because you know the dark is coming. So anyways, by the end, by the time the rain comes, you actually see everyone being like, oh, thank God. Like they're pulling on their Uggs because, you know, like I don't think they're still popular, but we wear them still, or maybe that's just me. And then Target all of a sudden gets out all the blankets and you buy like these thick, you know, and so, I mean, I'm literally like 
talking to my kids like, okay, this is the first fire of this season, you guys. So all that to say when I woke up this morning and I was like, why am I hot? <laughs> like, it's humid. And then I went to curl my hair and I was like, this is going to last about 10 minutes. And, um, but I also, again, was impressed that I knew how to use a curling iron at what was the equivalent of 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> so it's good to be here in Atlanta, right? That's where I am. Okay, great. <laughs> good. Um, this work is an incredible privilege. Um, it's also very complex work. You all came to a church very early in the morning on a Saturday to talk about heartache and trauma. If you weren't sure <laughs> that that's what we're doing today, that is what we're gonna do today, right? You can leave, it's okay, it won't hurt my feelings. Some of you were dragged here by a spouse who was like, you know, I read this book or I listened to this podcast or I did this training and I really want you to come. Um, if that's you, I see you. And, and, and my goal is now to win you over by the end. I can see you in the audience. The work is difficult, but I wouldn't do it for all of these years if it didn't bring life. And I think in this day and age, we're really struggling with hope. Not, not the fake hope, not the sense of the Pollyanna, everything's gonna be okay, the, the meme that says God takes care of everything. Well, we know that's true and it doesn't work out. Things don't just work out because we believe in God. We don't avoid cancer. We don't avoid the loss of children in our womb or stillbirths. We don't avoid divorce. We don't avoid addiction. We don't avoid suffering. So what's the point? The point is that we are meant to join something of the paradox of the gospel here on earth in the land of the living. And it doesn't mean that we get to avoid suffering, it means that we get to learn how to bear it with grace and humility, love and creativity, and find delight and gratitude in the deepest way that we're meant for not in the platitudes, not in the, oh, I'm so sorry that you're suffering, um, you know, but God is good. Ooh. But that is often how we as the church experience or understand an anemic God. That is not the God that we actually serve. The God that we serve is in the trenches, caring for the sick and the wounded and the heartbroken and bringing life where there is death. We can't avoid death, but we know that death is not the final story. 
And yet, as a church, we are so hesitant to grieve, to move into places where other people are suffering. And I think part of why we're so hesitant, it's not just the church, I think it's our culture in general. There are other cultures who do grief and mourning and suffering a lot better than we do. But you can see it all over our Western culture, right? Everything is built to remove suffering. When you're sick, you go somewhere else for someone whose job it is to take care of you. When you're dying, we're not with you at the side of the bed until the very end, maybe. When you're old and you have need, you're somewhere else for someone whose job it is to take care of you. We don't do well with the underbelly of what it means to be human. We want to avoid it. It's why we all watched Netflix during the pandemic. I finished Netflix. I legit, at the, like within a few months of the pandemic, I was just, I was not doing well. And all of a sudden I'm like, I don't think there's anything else for me to watch. Like, and I'm looking to see like what's gonna come out soon, you know, and it was like Tiger King. And I was like, I cannot, right? But we dissociate and we numb because we don't know how to bear it in our own bodies without feeling like we're going to die or feeling like the despair and the depression is going to overtake us. My hope today is that we actually gain a new imagination for the fact that it's not about removing suffering, it's learning how to be a people who can bear it with life, imagination, connection, creativity, not deny its existence. What does it mean to be comfortable enough in our own skin where we know that we can grieve and mourn with those who are mourning and we can dance and delight with those who are rejoicing? We need to be able to do both. But oftentimes in our culture, whether we do it consciously or subconsciously, we want a positive 10 on the joy scale without having to bear a negative 10 on the grief scale. You cannot have true positive 10 delight and joy unless you are willing to enter into the depths of the suffering of the human beings around you and your suffering in your own life. It's why when someone comes to us when we're suffering or, or feeling down and just wants us to get better, we feel empty and hollow. And, and then we turn on ourselves. What's wrong with me? Why can't I just be better? I don't know if you've seen the stats, you know, I'm a mental health professional, so I read all these articles. Um, depression and anxiety has increased 
275% in the last two years. 275%. Why? Yes, we're in the middle of massive turmoil culturally. We went through a pandemic that split us and divided us. Every single organization during the pandemic was about to piss off 50% of the people at any given moment, depending on how they were making decisions. And a lot of people never returned afterwards. Well, again, why? It's not to say that all of a sudden, yes, we've had an increase of collective trauma, but what happens when you have an increase of collective trauma is that all of the buried trauma that none of us have addressed in our lives, we've built our life to be able to handle our broken hearts for that moment. Now, we added on with a collective trauma and our current way of relating that kept us above the water just a little bit no longer worked. So what this has done is actually exposed us to the trauma that was always there by putting more over the top of it. So that's the world that we're now living in. It's not to say we were great before two years ago. We just knew how to numb it out. We knew how to turn a blind eye. We knew how to make ourselves feel better. So one of my coping mechanisms when I feel sad um, is that I take myself out to a, to a restaurant. Um, I have my favorites in Seattle. I go, I usually get like a BLT. I don't know why. Like I just really like them. And sometimes a little avocado on it, it's super tasty. I really just like mayonnaise and I like bacon. <laughs> so. And then I like a Bloody Mary. That's, that's, that's what I like. You know, this is, this, so I, whenever I would feel upset, I would feel undone, I'm not sure about what's going on at work or my marriage or my kids, I would take myself out to lunch and I would go to my favorite restaurant, I would bring a book, I'd sit in the corner table and I would self-soothe. It's, it's not a bad self-soothing mechanism. I would only have one Bloody Mary, not three, you know, and, and it's okay, right? Like we do what we need to do. So, so all of a sudden I'm in the middle of a pandemic and everything, Seattle is a bit of a different culture than you guys. We were shut down until about 20 minutes ago. <laughs> I love Seattle so I can joke about it, <laughs> right? So all of a sudden, everything is shut down. And, and so, you know, the other thing that I would do is like, go to my favorite store, H&M, which is what I did before this trip and got this skirt. I don't know if it works yet, but I wanted to get a new skirt and this is what I did in order to make myself feel better about the fact that I was going alone and I felt nervous, all right? Again, thank you. Thanks, with the boots. Austin, okay. So, this is what we do. We all have coping mechanisms. We have ways in which we've learned how to handle ourselves. Not bad. But the pandemic, made it so that those things were not available. Have you seen the stats of how many people started heavily drinking during the pandemic? Why? 
Well, you took away the gym, you took away work, you took away things, school, you, you took away all the things that kept us steady in the midst of unaddressed trauma. So now we no longer have any of those coping mechanisms. The only thing we're seeing is through a screen. We cannot regulate with one another. And we are undone. And I'm assuming I'm not the first to say this, but it will get worse before it gets better. I'm a real Debbie Downer this morning. Okay, it's fine. We'll get to the good stuff, I promise. But it's good to have a reality check because this is the world that we're living in and we're not doing well. We're about to have an election. I can feel those nerves deep down in my body. And this is just a midterm election. What happens two more years from now when we have a presidential one? So the question then is what is our call as the believing community? If the world's a mess, we're a mess. And again, I'm not saying that it's like catastrophically worse. It's that we've lost our way of relating and understanding how to make ourselves feel better. It's actually an opportunity because what was working before for us is no longer working, which maybe that means we actually go for true healing. Maybe that means we actually learn how to bear the reality of what it means to be human and become the settled, mature, grounded Christians that can rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are mourning. Maybe part of what God is calling us to is to actually become the people who can help heal the world that is so divided and undone in this season because they are struggling with hopelessness and despair and depression and anxiety and they're not wrong. But the only way that we can become people who can help and pull other people out, right, or be with them in the midst of their grief and offer healing, offer connection, is if we are people who have faced our own stories. You cannot take anyone further than you've gone yourself. If you are denying your own heartache, the little suffering, right? That you have no idea how much it's impacted your style of relating right now. If you're ignoring your story, then you will, even if you don't mean to, you will diminish other people's stories too. You cannot have it both ways. If you have unaddressed grief, from when you had a miscarriage. And the way you dealt with that miscarriage was believing that God has a plan and a purpose for everything. And so you've denied the agony, the heartbreak. And then you got pregnant again and it was good and look how good God is. Not untrue. 
But when you're sitting with another woman who has lost a baby, that's not helpful. And so if you have been unwilling to handle that grief in your own life, ultimately, subconsciously, you will ask them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps just like you did. We do it all the time. I did it with my organization, right? You know, I'm, I'm like working, you know, gazillion hours and going at it and, and like building, building, building and doing all this stuff. And then people, I would see people around me in my organization, they'd be tired and they'd be burnt out. And I'm like, well, you should do it like I did it. Pull it together, right? And I'm like, I teach this stuff. But whatever is unaddressed in our own hearts, whatever demands we have for our own hearts, we subconsciously will put those demands on other people as well. And the way through that is by becoming more tender and more connected to what we have been avoiding for our whole lives. So that's why we're here. We're here to help you start to be curious about your own story. A lot of you have very traumatic stories that you can come and say, yes, so there's, there are two types of traumas in the world, big T trauma, little t trauma. Big T trauma is a violation of human dignity. It's sexual abuse, it's physical violence, it's verbal abuse, it's car accidents, it's death, it's divorce, big T trauma. So some of you have that in your life from your childhood and you can recognize it. And you're like, yes, I, this, this big T trauma happened. In some ways, it's easier for those of you who have had big T trauma to do some of this work because you can't deny that it happened. But big T trauma is always interlaced with little T trauma. Little t trauma is more subtle. It's more nuanced. In some ways, it's what wasn't there versus what was there. It's the lack of care. It's the lack of attunement. We'll get into that. It's where there was, there was subtle things happening between you and your dad or you and your mom where you knew that you were more connected to them emotionally than they, were to, than they were to their spouse. That's called triangulation. There are things that happen in our stories that are subtle, that we pick up on as children and then don't know what to do with, so we, we put them somewhere else in our mind. We disconnect ourselves from knowing. There's a great book out there um, by David Schnarch. She tragically died two years ago of a heart attack, um, I would say in the prime of his work. But he wrote this amazing book called Brain Talk. And the whole book is about the fact that we can accurately map people's minds by the age of five. So let me talk about what that means. At the age of five, 
you can tell when a parent or caregiver or teacher is lying. You can tell when their motivations are not kind. You can tell when they're annoyed. So I have two kiddos, a six-year-old and an almost nine-year-old. My nine-year-old turns nine in a week. And so I just have to tell you that to have the holiday of Halloween and then two weeks later, a birthday, this is a very intense time in our family <laughs> for little kids. So, you know, Liam, my nine-year-old, is already, like, you know, going through all the things and planning out the birthday. He's doing Minecraft again. <laughs> Minecraft. I don't understand it, but, you know, I love my kid, so I bought him Minecraft plates and a cake, and we we're going to be fine. So, and I have a six-year-old, my, my sweet little Aiden, right? And so... Aiden will often come to me and say, um, Mom, I, I want to do Legos. Okay, so how many of you have little kids? How many of them like Legos? It is a blessing and a curse. So I'm so grateful for Legos because, you know, we're not supposed to have kids on screens and that's what they want to do, but they're not supposed to do it. And so it's like anything else that I can do that feels like I'm being a good mom, like I want, I want that. Right? So, he, you know, they come and they're like, Mom, you know, can, can you come and do this Lego set with me? Like, no. <laughs> that would be an honest answer. That is not the answer I chose. So my kiddo comes and says, Mom, you know, will you come and do this Lego set with me? What I want to say is no. No, I don't want to do that because it is tedious and I think you can probably do it on your own but you just want me with you, which is precious and good. And I want to be the mom who wants to be with their son while they're doing this Lego set. I really, I, and I am some days, but I'm not other days. And so, I, you know, so I'll look at him and be like, oh, buddy, I would love to. <laughs> but I have to cook dinner and then the laundry and the playroom. And so mom is just really busy right now. And so I need to um, do this other stuff. But why don't you go play with your brother? Um, that's why we had him. So he looks at his mom, who for the most part is a good mom and a decent person and loves him. And he says, okay, mom. And then he leaves and he goes and plays or does Legos by himself. So given what I just told you about the fact that by the age of five, a child can accurately read his parent, what did Aiden read on my face? He knew I didn't want to play with him. He knew. He can accurately read my deception. But what am I asking him to do in order for me to stay the good mom that I really want to be in my own head? I'm asking him to deny what he has accurately read 
and believe me. It's cognitive dissonance is what that's called. And I am helping create that in my young son's body. Because if he believes me, I get to stay good. I want to play with him. I just have other things to do. He gets to feel continually okay about our relationship, right? And then he can just move through it and then go do something else. Now, is this big T trauma? No. But I'm using it as an example because this, we all do this. Good parents, not so good parents. We do it to each other. We do it to ourselves. We, we do this all the time, and it matters. Because now Aiden is left with a story that he knows in his body that's different than the story that he is now attached to in his left hemisphere of his brain, which is the meaning-making part of our brain. We all have stories that we know here but are different up here. That dissonance creates and wreaks a lot of havoc in our ways of relating to ourselves and the rest of the world. It really matters. Because now my son is having to sort out quickly, and we do this in a millisecond, right? Is he gonna believe himself or is he gonna believe me and then deny his own experience? Many of you, as you lean into your story, there are places that will, you'll feel something, but your brain will tell you a different story. That is traumatic mind mapping. That is where you had to write a different story or believe what was being told to you that was different than what was actually going on. So what should I have done? What's a more honest approach that doesn't put my son in this bind? No. no. Or I could put language around it and say, oh, you know, Aiden, um, I, I know that you have such a deep desire for this and I love that you wanna play with me. I feel kind of overwhelmed with all the things that I have going on. Um, I just need a little bit of space. How about this? How about you go play or do it on your own, give mama an hour, and then after that, let's come back and, and I'll play with you then. That allows him to hear me, to see me, and then have an integrated sense of himself and of me, and he doesn't have to choose which one he's going to believe. So as we look at some of your stories and some of the archetypes that we're gonna talk about today, I want you to keep in mind that all of us have these stories where we accurately read something of our parents that we did not want to know. And our parents 
did not want us to know either because it's difficult, it's exposing, it induces shame. It's not all bad. Am I a bad mom because I don't want my kid to know that I don't want to play with him? No. But he can accurately read it. Elliot, do we have slides? Yes. Okay, so let's go to the slides. It's always a mystery to see which one. Oh, good. Okay. So, so what are we talking about? We're talking about uncovering the difference between what we're meant for and what we experience, and then how we choose to shift our style of relating to deal with the gap. I know that may not make sense right now, but let's talk about Eden. We were all designed for Eden. We were designed for perfect connection with God, with self, with others, and with the earth. That's what we're created for. So when I talk about big T and little t trauma, we're exposing the fact that we have all been exposed to harm. None of us live in Eden. We live in a fallen world and none of us have escaped that harm. A lot of you are here because of other people's stories. <laughs> but all of us have stories of harm that have impacted how we handle today. And so if we want to shift how we are today, more kind, more loving, more connected, more space for intimacy, um, uh, more joy, more capacity to access um, our, our more difficult emotions, if we want to do any of that work in the present, we have to understand our past. And that goes for any context. If we want to actually look at how to help heal our culture, we have to accurately name our history. God is not afraid of the reality of the human condition. Why are we? I was, again, the battle with screen time. I was doing emails. Um, my, my kiddo, Liam, was littler. He was like four. And um, I just needed like 20 minutes to finish emails. And so I put him in front of a Kindle and, and, and I put on this like Bible app. Because if you're going to do screen time, you know, then you might as well be looking at the Bible. So, you know, instead of like Paw Patrol or something, I was like, I'm, you know, I'm doing a good job. I'm a three on the Enneagram, so like doing a good job is really important to me. <laughs> um, so... You know, I'm like, here, here's this thing, and it's, it's this, this um, app that you go through, and it tells you stories of the Bible, and then you can click on things, and like, you know, butterflies fly away, and all stuff, and so he did the creation story, he was rather, you know, unimpressed, and then, um, he, and then he went on to Noah's Ark, which is the next story that kids' Bibles go to, because it's about animals. And, and so, so I'm like, oh, good, you know, Noah's Ark, the Lord told Noah to build it, you know, and I'm like, this is fun, mother-daughter bonding time. 
and our son, sorry. And so he's looking at this and all of a sudden he's, he puts it down and he looks at me and he's like, mama, I question. Okay. So the animals, you know, they went, this is a four or five year old. So he's talking a bit differently, but the gist is the animals that came in, that God brought them into the ark. Yes. Yeah, buddy. God saved the animals. But mom, weren't there more than two of each animal? I'm like, yeah, yeah, there, there were more than two. It's like, so there, there was a boy and a girl panda that was saved. Yeah, a, a boy and a girl panda, buddy. And then, and then the flood came. Right. So then the rest of the pandas died. Mom, did God kill the pandas? I'm like, okay, put this away. We're going back to Paw Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> it's an awful story. I mean, it's a really awful story. It's about genocide and, and, it's, and the killing of all the things on the earth. And humans have gotten so bad that that's God's only option. Like, it is a super dark freaking story <laughs> that we put on nursery walls. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> but God does not sugarcoat the reality of what it has meant to be human. God isn't afraid. David, a man after God's own heart. Don't, we don't even have to start talking about that guy. Like Moses didn't even make it to the promised land after 40 years of leading people through a freaking desert and then ends up at the very end making a mistake because they've made him insane and then he can't go. Like, what? The Bible is a mess. God does not keep us from the horror of it. And yet, for some reason, when we start going into our own stories, into our own family of origin, or our own history as a nation or as a church, somehow we think that if we tell the truth, that we're being disloyal or that we're overexposing or we're being unkind. It's the truth that will set us free. It's the truth and truth is kind. Truth is hard but it has the power to redeem and to set us free because wherever we're living, bound to the lie is where the enemy can come in and tell us that the shadow needs to stay hidden. If you expose this, if you tell the truth about your family, if you tell the truth about what you felt in your mom's presence or in your dad's presence, if you start to uncover 
like the family laundry, was that, you know, expose the family secrets. Then somehow you're being disloyalty. It is from the pit of hell because it does not honor what God has actually asked us to do, which is to trust that there is no condemnation within Christ. That, that we don't have to hide. What's the first thing that Adam and Eve do after they eat from the tree of good and evil? They hide. It's our first instinct. But what does God do? He says, where are you? Where are you? And then when, he, when they come, I think his voice is kind and heartbroken. And what does he do? He clothes them. He offers them comfort, clothes them, and then bears the consequence of human sin and suffering. Like there, there is agony in that story, but it's the truth that allows then to God, for God to create a plan of provision and redemption. So if we want to live in a world where we are leaning into the redemptive arc of the gospel, we have to be willing to tell the truth first. And that is the truth of our stories, the truth of our culture and our history, the truth of our own hearts. We live in such a culture that is terrified of exposure and why? When leaders are exposed, they're out. When people are exposed, we don't have an imagination for redemption. We don't have an imagination for telling the truth about our families and then still being able to stay in relationship with them just in a different way. Dan and I were just talking, Dan Allender. I wrote the book with him. He's the other one. I wrote half a book. Um, Dan and I were talking about how many people we've talked to. And again, like this feels so conflictual because in some ways I understand it. And in other ways, I want to find a different way through where people are recognizing like, oh, my job is toxic. My boss is toxic. My family is toxic. You know, you hear all the toxic stuff and I'm like, ooh, that's true. But then what's the next thing? And so I'm out. The way I can now handle this is by completely splitting myself off for whatever was toxic without understanding that you have a relationship with the toxicity. It's not just them that's toxic. There's something that's happening with you as well that there's a relationship. But if you just split one side and you don't address you, then we're just going to live in this world where it's us against them. And every single context is like, well, what side are you on? Right? And that's not how the gospel has been written. Every time Jesus engaged with people, it was like, no, no, like there is exposure, there's truth, you know, there's, there's calling out, but there's also an, inv an invitation back. 
the Pharisees weren't just like pushed out. And if the Pharisees had come back and said, I believe, which some did, it was like, come, come on in. Paul, it's a great example. He was the worst. And then he turned and repented and came back. So I don't say that like, you know, if you're in a, listen, if you're in a toxic relationship with an abusive person and there's no, there's no possibility right now and you need to separate in order to be able to regain a sense of who you are and health and clarity, I'm not saying that's not needed at points. I'm saying when it goes to extremity where we don't have a sense, then we all stay hidden. Because what happens next when you know, you, you've separated yourself from your toxic parents and now your kids decide that you're toxic too? Right? Like there's just a sense of what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to acknowledge what is true about the human heart? lean into it, be willing to acknowledge where we have been harmed, where we have harmed others, and then how we stay protected in order to keep us from that harm. Are we willing to tell the truth? Because when we are, we'll actually be able to move into a redemptive arc. Let's go to the next slide, Elliot. So this is what we're talking about. This is called the Shalom Ark. Again, Jason, these are my, like I even redid the slides. They're prettier. I didn't do it, someone else did. I hired someone. (laughs) So Shalom, we have Eden written into our bodies. Now, pretty quickly, as we go into the world, we realize that we are not in Eden. So I've had two babies, um, and what do babies do as soon as they get out of the womb, typically? They cry. They have an immediate instinct that tells them that if they are uncomfortable, they don't like whatever they're feeling. Can you imagine? Like, I'm so grateful that we don't remember the birth trauma. Like, Lord have mercy. It's, it's just a lot. So. It's the first time you're feeling cold, you're feeling other hands grab you, you're feeling, you know, the air in your lungs. Like that just, there has to be something that's just like so jarring about that moment. Baby cries. But a baby is also able to be soothed and has the assumption that there is going to be a face that they're met with that's looking for them. This is, there's a wonderful um, author and psychologist named Kurt Thompson, and he talks about this, that babies are born looking for someone who's looking for them. That's our immediate instinct. We assume that that's going to be available to us now Have any of you been in a context where there are a lot of babies who are not receiving care? An orphanage, homes, right? What happens? It's quiet. A child will learn quickly 
whether or not their cries and their tears are actually going to bring comfort and soothing from a caregiver. And when they realize that it's not available to them, they stop crying. We learn to adjust our need for care based on what is available to us by our caregivers. Let me say that again. We adjust our need for care based on what's available to us. So if you are born into a world where you have a highly anxious mother or, or someone who has postpartum depression, which was my story, a child is then linked in a way where they're going to adjust their style of relating for what the parent can offer them. It happens quickly. And you won't have stories around that. But it impacts because we shift our style of relating to stay safe because you cannot bear over and over and over again a parent who's not available to you. It's too hurtful, it's too painful. So if Aiden kept asking me to play Legos and I kept saying no, what happens? He stops asking. So sometimes for you all to get into your story, you have to look at it through via negativa instead of via positiva, right? What was absent? Because at some point, you know, you could say like, well, I just never really wanted connection. I was a really isolated kid. My parents weren't mean. I was just always, you know, in my bedroom or reading. Or do there is a reason why that was safer for you and why you stopped asking. A child is built for connection. A child is built for attunement, which is basically someone reading you and being able to understand your needs and then giving you what you need. Not perfect, right? There's a theory called good enough mothering, thank God. You only have to get it right like 60% of the time to give a pretty, I'm like, that's great. It feels very kind for us humans, right? But we need to start to understand where shattering occurred and it occurred for all of us because we do not live in Eden. And that shattering impacts how you then are in the world. So I'm gonna do 10 more minutes and then I'm gonna give you guys a 15 minute break to you know, handle the coffee that you had this morning. Um, and then we're gonna get into some of the impact of trauma and some of the archetypes. But let me, before we jump into that, let me talk about embedded trauma. So what we're talking about with shalom shattered and shalom sought and how we move into the sense of shalom restored is that we understand that all of us are going to have heartache and trauma in our lives. Uh, all of us, right? So I don't have to say that again because I've kind of beaten that. Okay, great. Um, so, but it doesn't mean that all of us have to stay in this sense of, of trauma that's entrenched in our bodies. We are able to mitigate 
trauma. It's the good news. We are able to move through something that's very, very difficult and be healed from it or feel it resolved in our bodies if it's handled well. Oftentimes when I'm working with people who come into my office because they have sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse, and they wanna talk about their childhood sexual abuse, sometimes it'll be with a neighbor or an uncle or you know different things and it's not necessarily from their immediate family. Nine times out of 10, the more difficult story is around how that abuse was handled within their family system versus what actually happened with the abuser. Abuse never happens in a vacuum. But especially when we have trauma that happens outside, you know, it's like, well, that was bad. And then, you know, and, and so often it's the family system that asks you to forgive doesn't believe you, wasn't a safe enough system for you to even go to and say this thing is happening because you knew that if you had gone, they would have shamed you, it would have been awful, and then you know your whole family would have fallen apart. We know intuitively whether or not our parents are safe. We know because of mind mapping how it's going to go. But oftentimes, you know, if you're struggling and, and again, this is everyone's story, this is no one's story, right? When someone comes and says, yeah, you know, my babysitter abused me, and then, and then we start to move into the family of origin, like what's happened with the family, you realize that this little girl went to her parents and told her about the abuse, and then immediately she saw them shut down, have shame, there was part of them that felt like she was dirty, right? And couldn't bear her face any longer because of how uncomfortable it made them feel. And then, you know, they addressed it. They got angry with the, the neighbor kid and, and then he moved away. And then they were like, you know, you need to get over this. This was a bad thing. It happened. Move on. Again, that's not all of your stories, that's some of your stories. But oftentimes that is more damaging than the actual abuse because it tells you something about your world. And so let's talk about the difference between a traumatic event that can actually be healed and then when it becomes an embedded trauma. So let's say in that same scenario where you have you know, a tragedy happen and, a, and a, a kiddo gets abused by a babysitter and, co and comes to their family and tells them, and the family activates. The parents stay calm, they're grieved, they handle it well, they take the kiddo to therapy, they talk about it, they're not ashamed. They help that little girl work through her body, what may be activated in her own arousal, and they're able to help her move through even late, at a later age when she starts to date and she starts to have flashbacks, right? They're aware that that's gonna happen and they're with her at every step of the way. They're offering containment, they're offering care. They're handling their own bodies and their own grief and their own shame. 
that allows that girl to have an incredibly traumatic thing happen to her, but the trauma does not get lodged into her body. It's something that she can address, that's addressed openly. It's not to say that it just goes away, it's still there, but it's not lodged, and it didn't then create workarounds. So if you think of your trauma system like as, as like blood vessels, it's like every time you have a, a lodged trauma, it's like an artery block. And then your body has to do workarounds to figure out how to get the blood going. But that, but that part is no longer available to you. It's something's lodged in there and that matters. And if you have those all over your body, all of a sudden you realize you have landmines all over your system that you don't know how to address. Well, that impacts how you feel safe, how you have intimacy with other people, how you experience care. It impacts all of those things, right? But if we can go in and start to dislodge some of these, this trauma, then it actually releases your system to then be integrated and be healthy. It's hard work. Sometimes it's painful but you're looking for the places where the traumatic, what could have been a traumatic event became an embedded trauma that's now a part of your life and has never been addressed. So even as we look at this, there may be some things where you, you kind of do a self-assessment and you're like, yeah, that's a painful memory, but it feels like it's healed. Hallelujah, wonderful. Let's look at where it's not. Right, so not all of your stories need to be engaged or need to kind of go back in to do some surgery around. But there are probably places where you have embedded trauma that is unaddressed, that has really wreaked havoc in your system and kept you from being able to experience joy and love and connection and goodness and offer that to other people. Having embedded trauma is exhausting. right? Because your system is having to work three, four, five times as hard to keep you alive. If we go into those places and we allow ourselves to grieve and, and tell the truth and allow ourselves to be cared for, those things can break up and then pass through you. It's possible I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't be doing this for 18 years if I didn't see it happen over and over and over and over again. But you have to be willing to understand where the shattering occurred and where you've now sought shalom in a way that's more of a false Eden. Because what we do when we have all these embedded traumas is that we then create a safety mechanism for ourselves that isn't actually super healthy. <laughs> Right? So like, this thing hurt me, so I will never allow myself to be taken advantage like that again. Well, that'll keep you safe. That's an adaptive behavior as a kid. Thank God. You needed your adaptive behaviors when you were young to keep you safe in the system that you could not escape from. You needed them. But as an adult, they become maladaptive behaviors because they keep you from love and connection and they keep you from being able to be the person that God actually created you to be. 
And so as we go into the impact of trauma and after this break, and then go into the archetypes, that's what I want you to start to look at. Do a self-assessment of your system. Where does it hit? Like as, as we talk about orphan in a little bit, and, and you let orphan kind of move through your body, does it hit somewhere? Well, that's probably a good indicator that you have some embedded trauma there, right? Because again, what we're seeing, even with my little example of Aiden, where is your body telling you the truth and your left brain telling you a different story? What we have to be able to do is integrate those things and allow that and allow your body to receive some care and some healing so that so that we can be a part of this shalom restored. Okay? We're off and running. If you don't come back, it's okay. <laughs> I get it. I'll see you in 15. I've grabbed mine. Round two, three, I don't know. Four, five. <laughs> I know. I um, so usually I always rent cars. I like control. I like control. Um, and so I, I rent cars. And this time I'm only here for 24 hours. Like I flew in last night, and I fly out tonight at 6:50. It's it's a lot. My husband's meeting me. We're go, we're going to do some work in Colorado with Adam Young. For those of you who know Adam and his wife Caroline, um, so we're gonna go meet. But yesterday I'm saying goodbye to him, and he's like, "Okay, I'll see you tomorrow." And I was like, "Wait, what?" He's like, "Yeah, we're meeting at an airport in Denver tomorrow night." I was like, "I don't understand my life right now. <laughs> this is too much. It's too much." But um, because, so because it was so short, I decided not to rent a car. And I, I'm doing lifts, which any, I don't know if those of you who are um, uh, sensitive in your noses, but um, there is nothing that will give me a headache faster than like a bad air freshener in a car. And so every time I'm in a lift, it's like, okay, you know, it, what's the smell going to be like in here? And I'm hoping for pine cones. <laughs> I like the Pacific Northwest. Like it's, it's good. Everyone likes a pine cone. Um, but because I'm doing that, I, I didn't, because usually before one of these things, I'll stop at a Starbucks and go get a triple. So here, so this is exposing, just so you guys, you know, you can feel my shame. I get a tall triple, one pump sugar-free non-fat milk latte, one pump sugar-free vanilla non-fat milk latte. It is obnoxious to order that. And I feel embarrassed every time. And it's why I have an app, and it's why I now just go to Starbucks so I don't have to talk to anyone and say it out loud. I just order it on an app. And then, and then I drink it, and then I'm like, I'm fine, right? No matter what time zone I'm in, I'm, I'm okay. But because I couldn't, I, I didn't have enough ego strength to ask the Lyft driver to find me a Starbucks. So I came here without a triple espresso. And and now, but now I'm finding, and I knew, as soon as I pulled up, I was like, oh, this is a good hipster church. They're going to have good coffee. <laughs> I was like, this is good, because I was with the Presbyterians up in Indiana a couple weeks ago, and that was not a good scene. <laughs> they were lovely. 
Okay. Are you guys back? All right. So um, good news and bad news about this skirt. I think I like it. Bad news, it slips. It's slippy. So I don't... <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll see if it works or not. I feel a little... Okay. So, um, so we're, we got into the sitting portion. So when we, we go deep. Okay. Um, so let's talk about, we've talked about embedded trauma. We've covered a lot of, of terrain in an hour and 15 minutes. So if you're feeling a little bit like, whew, that's okay. Like, just hang with me. Again, I have slides and there's a book. So you can take in whatever you want and then read the book later and throw it across the room or cross portions out. Um, but it's a lot. And so I also just want to settle our bodies and just check in. So much of the damage that's been done by unaddressed trauma is, is that we are disengaged and separated from our bodies. And we do that on purpose. It's a survival mechanism because our body will be the first part of us that gives us away. So I, I don't know if you know your tells. I know mine, I, get, I have this, so I, I was very put together as a kid. My nickname was Senator. Um, and I would give presentations, but I would get nervous and my neck would get blotchy and it would start down here and then it would just start to like, and then it would go up the sides and, and, and you knew, and I, and so I started to wear turtlenecks or, or scarves because I was so embarrassed. And, and more than anything, it, it, it told people I was nervous, even though you couldn't see that I was nervous here. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't like that, because it was a tell. And, and so what happened is that as I, you know, because I was the kid who was just, he was fine. Uh, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I'm good. Um, and so, so my friends started to be able to tell that my neck revealed a lot more about how I was doing than I was willing to do on my own. And so like, I remember I, I was in a band. I went to a Christian college, Grove City College. It's fine. Oh, okay. But no one in Seattle, and you can't say Grove, because they're like, didn't he, they have Mike Pence one time? I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. Um, it's fine. So, sorry, that's, you don't need to get into politics. It's just, that's a whole other hornet's nest that I don't, I'm not interested in. But. Um, so, so my friend, Sean, he called me and, and I'm in this band, a Christian band, you know, we were trying to be Cademan's Call, it's the 90s. Um, and so I was the, I was the girl in Cademan's. So, so he called me, he's like, hey, you know, we, we need a band practice. And I was like, okay, yeah, you know, I can make that work, you know, and, and, I, and I have like this heavy ca uh, class load. And he goes, hey, um, will you do me a favor and look in the mirror? 
okay, Sean. He's like, is your neck red? And I was like, uh-huh. He's like, okay, so you're overwhelmed and we need to not have band practice <laughs> because I think you need to study for your final exams. And I was like, that is true, right? And so we, our bodies often tell a story that we don't often want to listen to or slow down long enough to understand what it's telling us. But our bodies can't help but be truthful. I mean, we try to override them, but do you know the scientific connection between autoimmune disorders and trauma? If you're curious about the connection between the body and the mind, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk is thick, but very good. And also Hilary McBride just wrote another one, The Body of Wisdom or Body, The Wisdom of the Body. That's an easier one for you to go to. It's amazing to me that when we talk about our minds, we don't often understand that our minds are part of our bodies. <laughs> They're all interconnected. And a, someone who works as, as a doctor, where are you? My friend who just gave me language for blocked arteries. What, what's the name of it? Collateral circulation. Co so collateral circulation is the actual name for when you have a blocked artery and your body creates workarounds. Collateral circulation, that's amazing, right? So our bodies have ways of figuring out how to manage our trauma, but oftentimes the way that we are able to do that is by shutting down our bodies and not listening to them because what they tell us we cannot bear. But to live alive with sensation and sensuality an embodiment, we need to start to integrate. And the way we integrate is by understanding what our bodies have known that our minds have yet to catch up with. So that's what we're going to be doing for the rest of the day is to understand the connection between those things. But I want you, if you can, to pay attention to your body. Even right now, as you're sitting here, are you tense? Are your palms sweaty? Are you sweating? Whenever I talk about embarrassing stories, I start to sweat like Mary Catherine Gallagher from... <laughs> so, this is all gonna date me. I don't have anything recent to talk about except the Taylor Swift new album. It's the only thing I know. It's the only music, new music I've heard in two years. Because, you know, when I was in quarantine, I just listened to the 70s and 80s. That felt like a really good place to be. And, and so Taylor Swift, she's my first, my first in this decade. <laughs> That's good. Um, so do you notice physiologically, do you have a knot in your stomach? Is your heart pounding? Do you know where you carry grief? Do you know where you carry anxiety? I carry my anxiety right here. It'll clench up like someone's sitting on my chest. 
I'd have to take a deep breath to bring my body back down. Do you feel it in the pit of your stomach where you churn? Do you know that you have glia cells that tell you your emotional attunement and what's going on that are actually in your gut? So the idea that you're like a gut instinct, it's a true thing. You have cells that know things here. You have body sensation that knows things here. Are you tight in your chest or in your, in your uh, traps? Someone just said, like, I, my shoulders are sometimes hung on me like earrings. Right? But again, all of that is telling you a story that oftentimes will usher us into the other stories that we need to reckon with. So will you pay attention? If your body is telling you that you need to stand up and pace, go. If your body is telling you that this is too much and you're dysregulated, take a break. Like there is no demand for you to move through this material quickly. And so will you listen to what your body needs so that you can stay in step with it, right? So this leads me to the next slide. This is the impact of trauma. Some of this will be new to you, some of this will not. Um, trauma is a big word in today's culture, which is great. We like to say we were into trauma before trauma was cool. <laughs> um, but we were. So um, this is the impact of trauma. There are three things that happen to us. And again, I don't want any of this to be pathologized. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Oftentimes, we look at our responses and we judge them. We make them bad. We make them good. We associate things with them. What I want to do is, is to give us a chance to just locate ourselves in what is inevitable around the impact of trauma, right? Because these things are a way that we survive. If we had to bear the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of our families, the brokenness of our culture without any way to cope, we would all be insane. We would. We need ways, and our brain and our body is incredible. And I believe that this is part of God's design for us to be able to bear living in the broken world without us losing our minds. So thank God. And we get to move into other spaces as we recognize how these things have played out in our minds, in our bodies, right? So that we can move towards connection. So let's talk about the first one. This is probably going to be the one that is newest, if there's going to be anything new on here that you're not already aware of. And it's the idea of fragmentation. Now, our brain. We have a left and a right hemisphere. So if this is your brain, right, there's a thing here, down here at the stem, the amygdala. It's the thing that keeps us safe. It's our fight, flight, or freeze. The part of us that's our reptilic brain, the, the one that like, is, is common to almost, I think, almost every species that has a brain has this part. We're getting into neuroscience that I am not prepared to talk about. But this is the thing that is activated, right? It keeps us safe when we feel unsafe. Now we have a right and a, 
a right and a left hemisphere that go together. Our left hemisphere is language, is meaning, is understanding, memory, explicit memory. Our right brain is what holds sensation, body memory, implicit memory, creativity, um, sensory movement, right? That, that's your right brain. So what happens when you experience something that overwhelms your natural capacity to cope, it's all that trauma is, it's something that overrides, overwhelms your natural capacity to cope. When that happens, our brain realizes it's too much. If our right and our left brains are interconnected, we will go insane. So what it does is it detaches limbically, like in your, in your brain, it severs. And what, it, what happens is that the moment it's like a puzzle, and your brain tosses the puzzle up in the air and lets the different parts of the puzzle go to different parts of your brain. So that you only have to bear certain pieces of what's happening in a way that you can actually know how to handle it in the moment. Does that make sense? Okay, it's brilliant. It's basically saying it's too much, can't handle it, so your brain takes, takes it apart for you. It's a severe mercy. Especially as children. Because the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that, that holds understanding and meaning and, and capacity to kind of um, make sense of things is not fully developed until, for boys, especially until their 20s. Explains a lot. <laughs> just kidding. I mean, kind of, it's actually just true though. <laughs> so, so it takes a while for us to start to be able to really understand nuanced thinking. And so my son Aiden, at six, understands mom doesn't want to play with me. He, gets, he knows that. He sees it. But he also knows that he doesn't want me to be disconnected from him. He doesn't want to have to handle, he can't handle a mom who doesn't want to play with him that's too difficult for his little body to, to engage or to understand, right? So in some ways it fragments. It's a mercy. But as you get older, you now have all of these stories that as a child, again, if it's embedded trauma, so these are stories that were not handled well by your family, by your caregivers, or caused by your caregivers, right? When you have those stories, they're often still fragmented then as adults. And so part of the healing is to defragment your stories. So oftentimes, when you get, and this is why, so the Allender Center, we developed something called story work. That's, that's what we've been spending the last 18 years doing, is developing this methodology. Um, and, and then Dan has probably been doing it intuitively for 40 years. Um, we just kind of started to actively work on it for the past 18. Story work is basically 
bringing people back into that. We have you write a story, an actual narrative. And then by you writing a story, we're then able to understand where there's still fragmentation and where we can help reintegrate and reconnect the full story. The parts of you that you didn't want to see, the parts of you that you couldn't see, the parts of you that were too painful, the parts of you that, were, that are lodged somewhere in here but you haven't had access to yet. Our job is to bring it all together because one of the most beautiful things, and I think this was um, uh, David Schnarch said that, that healing comes from crafting an accurate biographical narrative of your life. Healing comes from creating an accurate biographical narrative. My New Jersey accent just came out in narrative. So that's what we're doing. Because as kids, we cannot fully understand both cognitively, because our prefrontal cortex isn't quite online in the way that it needs to be to be able to do that sort of thinking, and we're in the middle of a family of origin that we can't disrupt because there's nowhere to go. So what we're doing is going back to those places where there was fragmentation and helping put the pieces back together. I often think of it as like dislocated shoulder. Apparently I have a lot of medical, but, um, I don't know, just easier. Where we have dislocated shoulders all over our, our, our narrative, our biographical narrative. And, and so we have to go back in and understand like where's the pain and then we have to put them back in their socket so that you have full access to be able to deal with and handle the reality of what you suffered. And again, this isn't about blaming your parents or, or like exposing things or even navel gazing. This is so you can be a more healing presence in the world and actually offer something of the good news of the gospel here on earth as it is in heaven. But you cannot do that if your story is, is wreaking havoc and like, you know, pinging all over itself in your body and you're reactive all over the place and you have no idea why. Have you ever had moments where you go into something and all of a sudden you have like a really intense reaction? You're like, what was that about? Right? That was my first clue that I had a story of abuse in my background. I went to um, a movie in probably 1996 or 1997 with John Travolta in it called uh, The General's Daughter. I grew up, my dad was in the military, grew up in military home, military culture. It's a very different sort of culture. And I won't get into a lot of detail around the part of my story that this movie revealed but I came out of that movie shaking, hysterical. It was a date, so that's awkward, awkward. Poor Christian, Christian Kinane, who's my next door neighbor. That didn't work out. 
<laughs> so I'm in this movie theater, and I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, I don't understand why I'm this upset, but I'm shaking, I'm hysterical, and I can't, I, I, and I'm, I, what now I understand, I'm, I'm having a close to a panic attack. Um, but, I'm, but I can't locate the why. I can't locate the emotion, the feeling. Like, I just knew that I was both enraged, I felt defensive about something that I, you know, so the only way I could explain it, because this kid, poor guy, he's like, what's, are you okay? I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not okay. You know, but I'm like, but the only way that I could explain it is, is, you know, society is just trying to paint every single military family as bad. That's, that's how I... So I'm defensive of my family, of my dad, through this movie. We all have out-of-the-blue reactions to things. And some of them, you can understand that they're trigger points, especially as we have more language, right? This is the 90s, and I'm in high school. No one has language for this. And I grew up in a youth group that was like, you know, if you're upset, you pray more. And, and you go to, you know, DC 94. That was the thing back then. Again, I'm dating myself. It's fine for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about. There are these huge conventions that, like, all good youth group kids went to in DC and then LA. And, like, the newsboys were playing. Anyways, so we, this is, look. So this is what we did. And, and I did every altar call and rededicated my life to Jesus. And, you know, because that was what I knew to do in order to settle my body, to settle my heart to become better, right? And so all of a sudden I'm in the midst of this movie and I have this massive reaction. Now, as I understand, again, that was my first clue. It would take seven, eight more years until I sat with Dan Allender and he was able to help me see my story. So fragmentation happens and we'll get clues as to where something has been fragmented. But more often than not, we cannot put it back together ourselves. This is the beauty and the paradox of the gospel. Relationship is what has harmed us and relationship is what will heal us. I don't understand it. I think it's rude. You know, people are like, when I meet God, I'm going to have questions. I'm like, that's going to be the biggest one for me. I'm going to be like, that, like, was there not a way that we could do it on our own? That would have been really great. But we can't. And why? Because we cannot see our own faces. Do you realize that? Like, I see a truer version of Jason's face than he has ever seen of himself. Because he has only seen a picture a reflection, an image of his face. So I can read nuance in his face in a way that he cannot understand in his own body. That is beautiful. It is a gift. And so we get the gift of being able to read one another's stories if we're willing 
you are not going to be able to defragment your own story because your brain is created to not do it. And frankly, you're going to not see gaps. I don't know if you've had experience. Like I know in this church, and thank God you guys are doing this work, but they're actually doing story groups here. And I know there are people from crew who are doing story groups and they're like story stuff is happening all over the country and that's incredible, all over the world, right? But when you do that work, you're able to see what someone else does not want to see because of their heartache and their pain and the fact that it still feels like if I see this, I will die. Or the, the pain, the agony is going to, to descend me into this place of depression and anxiety that I will never get back out of. I can't tell you the number of people who, who when I, after I do these conversations, they're like, okay, I get it, you're right. Like I've, I, I had this sense of where this was true in my own story. But if I go down into those places and actually start to grieve, I don't know that I'll ever stop crying. What if it destroys me? What if I can't function? What if I can't parent? What if I am just a hot mess? I was on the phone with a friend last night. I've trained her for years. We're good friends now. We do retreats. Like, we know this stuff. And she just lost her dad. And she's calling me to talk about the stuff that's going on with her daughters. I'm like, okay, I know this is hard. (laughs) But notice how you don't want to look at your own grief. So we get to help each other defragment. We get to read each other's stories. But will you also be curious around where fragmentation has occurred for for you and where it happens already? I was um, in Indianapolis, again, uh, you know, the the whirlwind of I got in the night before and was teaching the next day. And, you know, I don't take medicine at all very often. The only time, and I have 30 pills of Ambien. And I take one the first night I'm in a new, you know, when I need to go to bed three hours earlier than my body actually wants to go to bed. And so I'm in this hotel room. I, I get out a pill. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, I have to get everything else ready, my alarm set, all the things set for the next morning so that I'm prepared. And then I will take this pill, and then I will go to sleep. It is a mercy I afford myself in moderation. So I... I I, I go and I, I do all the things. I go back to where I knew I put the pill. Um, it's not there. I'm like, oh no. I, like I look around, I look under. I'm like, where the world did this pill go? Like this is crazy. So, you know, and I'm like, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm like, well, that's, this is terrible. I lost one of my 30 pills, like ridic- ridiculous. And, and then I, and I go to grab another one. And all of a sudden, I'm like, did I already take it? And, and then I had this nightmare, like, you know, because I, I think through all the worst case scenarios. So then I'm like, if I take this pill and I already taken one, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow morning. And like, can this kill you? Like, what is, what is an over, and I'm like, you know. And, 
And I'm like, no one knows. I'm, you know, no one's going to know. I'll just die in this hotel room. Like, you know, all of the, the worst case scenarios are happening. I'm like texting my husband, like, I don't know what to do, you know. And, and he's like, you cannot take another one. You have to just go to bed and hope that you have one in your system because you cannot afford It's fragmentation. It's, it's when you're overwhelmed and you can't quite be present to everything that's going on around you. And it happens all the time. It happened all the time in the pandemic. If you look back, do you remember May of 2020? I don't. I don't even remember. I have to go back and look at pictures to remind me what we were doing. June, lost, I have no idea, right? The way our body handles trauma is by not allowing us to have to deal with all of it at once. But the way we heal from the trauma is by when we're safe again, we have to tell the story. Um, there's a, a therapist author named Dan Siegel, and he is phenomenal. If you're curious about the best um, parenting book on the face of the earth that also parents you, it's called The Whole Brain Child, right? Talks a lot about embedded trauma in that book and the difference between traumatic event and embedded trauma. But in it, he says, you have to tell trauma stories between 20 and 30 times. in order to understand the full depth. Does that mean that every single one of your stories needs to be told 20 to 30 times? No. Each of you probably has three or four that I would call origin stories, where a lot of the other trauma um, mirrors that, is a facsimile of that. Because oftentimes trauma begets trauma, begets trauma, begets trauma, and oftentimes you'll have the same theme happen in a dozen stories, but if you get to the core one, most of those stories are then healed as that one is healed. It's beautiful. So you don't have to worry that, you know, all of your stories have to be told 30 times, but will you consider that maybe there are three? And, and maybe for some of you, you've never told the story ever. Well, then let's start with one. But the hope is that you start to defragment. You start to bring your brain back together. And when that happens, just like when you pop your shoulder back in, it hurts for a second, and then what do you feel? Relief. I think the most surprising thing for people when they go into story work is that they think it's gonna be more painful, but it's not. It's hard, but you have worked so hard keeping yourself away from your trauma stories that when you actually go into them, you're gonna feel a relief that you never thought was possible, a freedom you never thought possible. It's the equivalent of the woman who had the issue of blood holding Jesus' hem and immediately feeling relief 
there's a sense of as we touch down into our own stories, even if we are terrified of them, we will find relief in the grief. Oh, rhymed? I liked it. <laughs> because, again, you've worked so hard to keep it all underground. I was reading this book um, called When Everything Falls Apart, or Things Fall Apart, but it's a great book. And she tells the story of, of a group of people who are traveling to this Buddhist monastery in, you know, somewhere in Asia. And they go, they're, they're going up to this thing in this pilgrimage, and there's this dog on a, on a chain. And everyone, like, you know, goes up, and this dog is barking and, and you know, yelling at him in the way that dogs do. And, and, and everyone is like, whoa, you know, and, and they're walking all around, right? And, like, there's so much effort being taken to kind of avoid this dog. And, and it's taking a lot of effort for the group to try to, like, you know, be far enough away, and they're up against a, a wall. You know, it's all this stuff. And so finally someone just starts, just goes to the dog, walks right up to the dog, and, and says, sit. The dog sits. And, and the point of the story is that we do so much work to go around rather than approach. And in reality, when we approach, it's scary. You didn't know that the dog wasn't going to bite your hand off. But when you approach and say, sit, I'm handling you now. There's something that comes over your body comes over your limbic system that says, oh, finally, we're going to handle this. And it will bring you back to life in ways that you didn't even understand. Our fear of grief, I think, is the way that evil keeps us bound to harm. Our fear that it's going to overtake us keeps us bound and keeps us from looking, our fear that it's going to destroy our families. It might make things uncomfortable. We can handle that. It might disrupt things for a little while. That's okay. Maybe they need to be disrupted. You may have a season where you're not as close to your mom or your dad because you're needing space to deal with what's happened between you. You can do that with kindness and honor. It's not the end of the story. But to continue to be more committed to the work around is to keep yourself in active trauma for your whole life. It's not what God wants. I just, it's not. So that's fragmentation. Dissociation. We all know this one. When it's too much, we numb. We distract. It's okay. I tell a story in chapter two of Redeeming Heartache about my son, Liam. Maybe, yeah, chapter two. I won't get into details, but he had something difficult happen to him, and all he wanted to do when he got home was watch TV. He wanted to forget. Because his body was dysregulated, he was upset, and he didn't know how to work it through. I get it. 
it's not wrong. Right? And for that little boy, if he didn't have a mama who was willing to sit with him and help him, because what children need is to borrow your prefrontal cortex. They don't have it. They don't have language. They don't have an understanding of meaning. They don't understand how to, how to nuance things and have complexity and hold it or how to bring their bodies through a traumatic response. They only know this or fight, flight, or freeze. That's what they know. So your job is to help regulate them. Your job is to help soothe them. Your job is to help create language for things that they don't have language for yet. And that may take a little while. <clears throat> for me and Liam, it took about six hours for me to get his, his fragmented story back together and then to help him figure out ways to soothe and regulate his body without needing to go to extreme forms of dissociation. So we played, we did Legos, I stayed connected to him. It didn't mean that we had to stay in the story the whole time, but I needed his brain and his body to be with me so that as it came up, he had a way to process it. If your brain goes to just the distraction, we actually don't get to process it. So there are healthier ways for us to honor our need to numb, honor our need that it's, it's too much, but will you be aware of your body in that moment and bring honor and goodness and containment to it so that you can maybe choose something that won't be destructive? Dissociation is not bad. When Dan and I are traveling, we do you know, conferences. When we're done, all we want is to be around a table, talking, eating good food, typically ordering cheesecake at the end. Like, I like a good Bordeaux. That's, we, that's a good way for us to move back together, to do a conference, to bring our bodies down, to regulate one another, right? It's, it's good. Dissociation isn't all bad. It's when that is the thing that's distracting you, that's keeping you numb from what you are actually meant to engage. But we need dissociation, especially, again, as kids. So you'll often, I'll get stories all the time about kids who all they remember about their childhood is sitting in front of a TV, eating snacks, being up in their room, playing by themselves, right? Like there's, and this is now you're looking at the combination of dissociation and isolation. But what's missing in that? There was no one in their life to connect to. There was no one watching their face and understanding that they were in pain enough to be able to watch and say, hey, is, did everything go okay at school today? They knew they didn't have that, and so they had to regulate their own bodies. And when young bodies need to regulate their own bodies, it's often in very young, underdeveloped ways. And those young and underdeveloped ways are lifesavers, but then they become, again, maladaptive ways as an adult because you never learned to actually like, move your body into relationship with another person when you were in pain. And we'll get into that with Orphan in a second. 
The third thing is isolation. When the world seems too overwhelming, it's easier for you to be on your own. It's easier for you to fix yourself than bear the complexity and oftentimes messiness of someone else trying to care for you. So you care for yourself. Again, we'll get into this with orphan. But isolating means, hey, I, I know that this world is not gonna offer me goodness or safety or what I need, and so I'm gonna isolate myself. You read a lot of books, you had a really intense fantasy life as a kid. A lot of people, when, when they ask about their childhood, they'll remember like being in a tree or, or their backyard or laying on their grass and looking up at their trees. It's very devoid of connection. Well, there's a reason for that. There's a reason that isolation feels better. Again, this, this is happening in your day-to-day -day life. How many of you, um, when you make plans with someone, all of a sudden, like the day of, you're like, that was a mistake. <laughs> we could talk extroversion and introversion and all that stuff, but you know, there's something around like, we, we start to get nervous and, and overwhelmed at the idea of needing to extend ourselves into spaces with other people. Puts us on edge. I remember during the pandemic, going to the grocery store and being like, having legit panic attacks in the middle of the grocery store, leaving my entire cart full of food and being like, I live in the world of Amazon. This is my, that is my thing now. All of my food will get delivered from here on out because I don't want to leave and go to a grocery store. It was easier for me to be isolated. The first time that I, I had to try to go out and like order food or, or go do something or, or go on an airplane, it's like, this is overwhelming. I, I want to be back in my safe little cave with my little wolf pups, with like a wolf pack. I have you know, two boys, two big English golden retriever dogs, six chickens, and a husband. We have a pack. And anytime one of us left the pack, it was like really anxiety producing. Where I'm like, I can't, I don't know what's happening to you. Like my son, my, at one point, my six-year-old, and I guess he was four then, was the only one going out of the house to go do something. He was going to preschool, which thank God it was still open. Don't know how that happened, but thank God. But he was like, I, I'm not, I can't leave. I don't want to leave. You guys are all here. Out there is bad, and here is good. I'm not, you know. Again, it's easy to see how there's something of that that is protection and good and a mercy. But what happens when we are then meant to go back out and extend ourselves? Do you know that 50% of people have not gone back to church? And, and there are a lot of reasons for that, right? One of them is that they've been so deeply isolated that the idea of being back in seats, connecting, needing to have their face seen by other people is so dysregulating to them that they opt out. It's just too much. They don't want, they can't do it, right? But all of that is storied. So our proclivity of how we're going to handle trauma is going to be dependent on our stories of origin. So how you isolate, how you dissociate, 
how you engage with all three is all going to be dependent on what was available to you and then how you chose to survive, how you were best suited for it. All right. Questions about fragmentation, dissociation, and isolation, or trauma before I go into the archetypes? All clear? <laughs> clear as mud. Yeah. Um, because I knew that something had happened, I redirected. I, I, I pl we played. I didn't need him to, to like be talking to me the whole time, but I needed to be an active play with him, with his hands. So we did Legos, funny enough. We sat and did Legos because that allowed him to stay present without needing to engage the story until he was ready. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's, I'm preaching to myself at that point. But yeah, redirect to, to almost anything. Take a walk, make a cup of tea, light a candle, do your dishes. Like the, anything that keeps your body, at, like that will help your left and your right brain re-regulate. TV or screens does that, but it shuts down our, our limbic system, like it, it, and then it actually creates more cortisol. Because now we're borrowing off of adrenaline and anxiety from other people. Yeah, that's, it's, so self-care. The self-care world is, it's a wild world out there. <laughs> um, and, and this is what I would say, is, is what, what I've come to believe is that our role as we seek to mature and seek to, to ground ourselves is that w our primary role is figuring out how to re-regulate our bodies with kindness and care. And so they're, they're, when you look at regulation, so our nervous systems, our bodies, we have something called the, the, the vagus nerve. It's the vagal system. If you're interested in all of this, it's fascinating, and I would highly recommend. Again, I think um, Hillary goes into this in her book. Um, it, it controls almost everything. And so, we, and so there are things called hyperarousal and hypoarousal. Hyperarousal is when you are escalated, elevated, activated. You're in a state where your heart rate is up, you can't think, you are, you know, your, your body is pumping with cortisol and epinephrine and adrenaline, right? Like you're, you're activated. Um, that is a trauma response. You are not going to do any good thinking or decision-making or good conversations in that spot. So oftentimes, you know, we do marriage counseling. 
they're having these like heated, hyper-aroused conversations, and it is a mess. A lot of the work is to say, you know, you got to bring yourself, and it is your job to try to actively bring yourself back. You can ask for help. You can co-regulate with someone else. You can ask them to help regulate you. That is, that's a thing, right? So it's not to say you have to do all this by yourself, but part of maturing is taking ownership of the fact that like you get to choose how to handle your responses. So like, you know, a dad who's yelling at his kids out of this escalated state all the time is like, well, I can't help it, I'm angry. I have words that I'm trying to find that are different than swear words. But you get my drift. You do not have the right to have violence or abuse happen because of your dysregulation. It is your job to figure out how to handle. And if part of what you need in order to handle yourself is co-regulation with another person, then that's good, that's fine, right? So that's, that's hyper arousal, right? And so when we don't know how to handle hyper arousal well, and the only way you know how to, how to handle that is by taking a shot of whiskey or watching TV or getting scrolling, it's like, fine, if you need to do that for a hot second because that's the only thing you know how to do, then do that instead of raging at your kids or your wife. But let's figure out how to do that in a more helpful way and why hyperarousal is such a thing for you. Do you know why your nervous system is dysregulated? Well, it's because of your family of origin. So you can't, you know, you can figure out how to hold responsibility for yourself, but to do that deeper work, you're gonna need to look further into how did that come to be in your world? Right? The other one is hypoarousal. Okay? So this is like we could teach an entire week of a class on just this topic, but it's important to understand, right? Hypoarousal is where you shut down. It's still a dysregulated state. It's where you're muted. It's where you start to blank out. It's where you feel like you're in a tunnel and everything else is like really far away from you. It's where your heart rate slows way down and all of a sudden you're just like thinking about other things while someone is in your face talking to you or yelling at you. Like they're, they're both aroused states. One is hyper, one is hypo. Both require us to move back into the middle, right? And it's not just that zero, zero affect is the hope. It's one, two, three, one, two, three, right? You're wanting to stay in a zone. And oftentimes self-care doesn't, like the way that we look at self-care doesn't understand the biochemicals and the neurostructures that are then connected and linked to your story. And so you need to be willing to do the really hard work to understand that, you, like if you wanna understand, you can't just turn off your triggers around hyper-arousal and, and rage and anger. You have to do the deep work to understand the fact that you didn't have containment or attunement 
in your family structure and therefore as a little kid, you were never taught to regulate. Kids don't know how to regulate themselves. They need help. They need to borrow it from you, right? And so to be with a child when they're, I mean, again, my son Aiden, love him. The name Aiden means fire in your belly. I thought it, I, you know, it's like how much can namesakes actually matter? Ugh. This child has a lot of big feelings, right? And he just is like the most loving and sweet and um, like uh, funny. He loves to land a good joke, like, and he looks for it and it's just like really sweet. And then when he, when it's like, no, you can't get what you want, he is undone out of control, completely dysregulated. My, and my husband and I are both therapists. We're like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> you know, I look at him, he looks at me, and we're like, oh, okay, you know. And so, but what we know is that what he needs is us to be regulated in order for him to be able to attach and connect to us. So we have to be calm. This is easier for me to do than my husband. And so my husband's working on his regulation. His, his go-to is, is rage and anger. My go-to is shutting down. So Aiden is easier for me, but at some point, you know, I, I lose it, and, I, and then I hand him over to my husband. Not to get raged at. By that point, Will is fine. You know, but it, it's, it, they need us to be able to attune and say, okay, buddy, you know, you're okay. I know that you're angry. And you get to feel angry, but you don't get to kick mama. You don't get to hurt your brother. You don't get to, to rage and, and tell us, like, call us names. You can be angry, but let's, let's take a deep breath and calm our bodies just a little bit, okay? Not the time to talk about it. It's not the time to, right? But that's the role of a good parent is to help regulate a child. Now, what happens when a child not only doesn't have regulation, but the parent gives, indulges in their own rage, and so the child is angry and mouths off to the dad, and the dad rages back and is furious and slaps the kid across the face? Well, that kid stops or they cry, or they go to their room, but they don't actually learn how to regulate. They don't learn how to understand their own emotion, their own work, like what's going on in their bodies, right? And, and so when you see your own story, if you have dysregulation in your story, it's because a parent was not there and available for you to borrow off of their healed prefrontal cortex. And so we can say like, it's not your fault. And yet you have responsibility to heal. You have to hold both. The reason you cannot regulate is because you were in a dysregulated space and active trauma a lot of your life. 
So of course, as an adult, you don't know how to do that. However, you are now wreaking havoc on your family and your kids. Do your work. Yeah? Um, any, any work is good work. And if you're able to stabilize, but there's still a lot of active trauma and, and activation and dysregulation in your home, um, there's going to be a lot of work to do with those kids. And, and you're also going you're gonna to have to manage their feeling of why did you let this happen? I was just thinking in terms of like my family mm -hmm. like memories that are suppressed, like one parent versus the other, is that maybe body is protecting itself versus like the one parent did more of the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you have a good, like a parent who is healthier and more able to attune, you'll have healthier, kinder memories with that person. And again, we are so resilient that we don't need perfect in order for us to have kindness and our bodies rest, right? And so, you know, and research shows that you could have a good teacher, you could have a pastor, you could have a next door neighbor that invests in you. And by you even just getting a taste of goodness and what it's meant to be will be enough to buoy you and keep you alive and, in, and engaged, right? And so if you're looking at your memories and you have really difficult memories of one parent and, and pretty good memories of the other, it's like, you know, start wherever feels like there's energy, right, in your story. And, and you can believe that, like, there was probably goodness here. However, you're, as you do more work around this one parent, there's probably gonna be other stuff that starts to emerge because if this parent was really juxtaposed to a very abusive parent or someone who, who was pretty harmful, it's gonna be harder for you to name where that person triangulated you, where they emotionally enmeshed with you. Um, you know, so there's a lot of other stuff that happened. Like, and the, the, the purpose isn't to like deconstruct every family right, or like make parents bad, or the parent that you love, like start to uncover their unhealth. The hope is that you just start to tell a more truthful narrative so you can release, and then have healthier relationships with them. Because wherever we're blocking someone from the reality of their impact on us, we're actually taking over for Jesus in a way that Jesus never asked us to. Like our, our families don't need us to protect them. Right? Jesus needs us to heal. <laughs> All right. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, as in, that is your trauma response, is to go to God? Yeah, so, mm -hmm. like, because I see the isolation, and maybe I'm coming from my own story, which is, um, 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Did you guys all hear that? Okay, so she's asking, you know, what about, so this is another thing that, and again, I want to be careful because going to God is good. Um, uh, But what she's saying is what happens when someone kind of uses that as a way to isolate or as as almost like a way to say, hey, don't be so needy, go to God first. (laughs) That's how I kind of read it, right? And, and this is what I'd say, is that I always go back to Eden. Um, if Adam, Adam was with God in a garden without sin, with full dominion over the earth and animals and all the things, and it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. So why would we think that all we need is God? Like, without believing that somehow that's heretical or, or, you know, it's like, I think God created us for relationship. God is in the Trinity. God isn't even alone. God has the Holy Spirit in Jesus. Like, there's, there, there's, there's, a, there's a way that we are built for relationship. And, and again, like, I don't think if God was afraid of Adam or, like, judged Adam for, like, what, am I not good enough? <laughs> right? Like, that's not his attitude. He gives him Eve or, or woman, right? And, and so I think there's something in that for us where it can dismantle some of the places where, you know, I think part of even our, um, our heartache, we're terrified of connection, and we're also terrified of what it's going to mean if we actually try to connect and it doesn't go well. And so oftentimes, you know, our sense of going to God first is our way to try to circumnavigate the difficulty and the messiness of being cared for within relationships, especially when we've been deeply harmed. And so for those of you who have felt great comfort from God, like hallelujah, thank God for that, right? So it doesn't take that away it just says, how are you using that that's actually idolatry or a sense of, of being more committed to isolating, that God is actually inviting you to more, right? And where are you placing that on other people as a judgment? Why can't you just believe in God more? Why can't you just rely on God, right? And so, again, we're always wanting to look for where are we trying to escape and where are we judging? All right. Other questions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, is it ever... He's asking about co-regulation with adults versus kids. You notice how I talk a lot about kids. It's less complex. 
Um, we have something called limbic resonance. Okay, so there's a part of us, our intuitive knowing, that can know something about someone else by being in their presence, right? And so as adults, we have this wonderful thing, and we'll get into this, called attunement. You, you, do it, you naturally do it with kids. You read their, their bodies, their minds, their, their cries, and, and you help give them what they need, right? Now, there's an emotional attunement that happens between adults that is a gift. Have you ever had someone accurately read your face, your affect? You walk into a room and someone sees you and says, hi, it's, it's really good to see you. Are you okay? It seems like, like something happened or you seem really sad. Um, do you want to talk about it? Is there a time that we could set up, right? Like you see even your body drop when, when she's terrified now. She's like, please don't look at me. Um, <laughs> when someone like can see you and, and see past the facade that you're wanting to, to offer, past the platitudes, and, and they're actually able to attune to something of your heart's longing for connection. It is one of the most magical, amazing, healing experiences of our lives. And we can offer that to one another all the time. It's, it's a stunning act of mercy and a stunning act of God to give us the capacity to read one another's faces and to attune. The question is, will you sit with people long enough to hear their answer? Is your heart open enough? Is there enough space where you actually can sit with generosity and kindness and lean in and ask the third question? 80% of conversations only have two questions in the midst of them. Our lives, our relationships would change drastically if we sat long enough, stayed still and present long enough to ask a third. How are you? How are your kids? Hey, I noticed that um, you haven't been to church in a while, and I saw on Facebook that, I mean, I mean if you're going to use Facebook, you might as well do it in a healthy way. For, I noticed on Facebook that it seemed like, you know, you're, you're taking a lot of long walks, and it, and, and it seems like you may be having a hard time. And anything that... that you would want to talk to me about? Yeah, it's the anniversary of my mom's death. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. How is that for you? I could imagine that that would be a very difficult anniversary to go through. Right? Like, it, but oftentimes we ask the first two questions, not the third and certainly not the fourth. And so that's the, that's the magic. And that happens between spouses. Like if spouses are actually tuned and connected to one another, it dispels contempt. And we know from the Gottman research that um, most marriages, in fact, 99% of marriages end because of the presence of contempt. Contempt is eradicated 
when there's curiosity, attunement, and kindness. Because you cannot hold contempt for very long when you actually gain access to the truth of someone's heart. Even if you're angry with them, even if there's difficulty between the two of you, it changes the course of a conversation, of a relationship, and, and it's, it's difficult, and it's the simplest thing that we were created for. It's, it's God in the garden. Where are you? Where are you? Come back. It's God with Hagar. Where are you going? What's your name? It's Jesus with the woman at the well. Right? Like, that's all attunement. That's all connection. And our bodies are meant for it. And, and again, it doesn't have to be super, you don't have to be a therapist to do this. I'm sorry for those of you who are like, please don't talk to me, go see your therapist. I'm going to dispel that, and your marriage, you may have a harder time going forward. Um, y- you can do that. But again, can you also understand that part of the reason that attunement is hard for you is when you did not receive attunement as a child? It's not impossible. We're all built for it. But you do have to go into the work of where you were missed and be able to grieve that in order for that to kind of come back alive in your body. And you can practice reading faces, right? You do it all the time. Now, will you do it for the benefit of other people? Typically, we do it for survival. We read faces to determine danger, to determine if someone is safe, right? And so, so, and that's great, we need that. But then the next level of maturity, of kindness, of connection, of relationship is will you use it on behalf of one another and in connection together? Does that answer your question? No? He wants more. There's always more. Mm-hmm. And it didn't go well. Okay. Jason. Okay, so yes, um, attunement isn't always for your benefit. Sociopaths are incredibly attuned. They read your face. Yeah. Yeah, the question is, um, what if you were incredibly attuned to as a child, but it didn't go well? Abusers attune to you. They read your face, they read your vulnerabilities, they groom you, they move you into places where you trust, where you rest. That's why abuse is so brutal, right? So it's not, the harm isn't always the absence of something. In fact, when people come and tell me a story and they're like, well, my mom just didn't, they, they didn't see me. That's a, that's a new, people are saying that. Well, my, my parents, they just didn't see me. I'm like, oh, they saw you. They saw you really well, which is why they knew that to not get you that football and to give it to your brother for his birthday would destroy you. Oh, they saw you. Right? So attunement can be used for harm. And and more often than not, we're always reading each other. The question is, Are we doing it for good or ill? Are we doing it because we want to manipulate 
Are we doing it because we want the upper hand? Or are we doing it because we truly care? And oftentimes those are intermixed. And that's okay. It's, it's our job to sort that out. And to be honest. Because where you manipulate is because there's something that you're afraid of. And it's your way of seeking a false shalom. Because you're trying to make sure that no one else is going to harm you the way that you were harmed as a kid again. Right? So we don't have to pathologize all of it, but we do need to be willing to look at it. All right. Yeah. Yes. So she, she's saying, is it is is the premise that we're we're supposed to move towards connection, that that's what brings healing, and and yes, I would say it's connection, with self, with others, with God, and with the earth. It's all four. So I do think that there's space where connection with God is something that can be cultivated and brought into ritual and practice and a way of being with God that, that, that brings tenderness and goodness. There's a way to be with others that allows, avails your mind to them to, to connect and to be more present and honest. There are ways that you can be more present to yourself when you need to learn how to regulate what's true about your own body, what's true about your own arousal, what's, part, what's true about your sensuality and eroticism and all the things that you've kind of shoved away. You know, my therapist is, is a brilliant woman and she's, um, again, I, I don't think I'll ever be done with therapy, just in case you're not sure. Um, <laughs> and, you know, marriage therapy has saved our marriage like at least five times. Um, but as I've been working toward, with her with, towards more healing, her thing with me is, is our goal is for you to be at home and at peace in your own body. And, and so it's like, if I can, and then that will allow me to connect to you. And sometimes I have to connect to a person first in order to then understand where I'm not connecting to myself. But I would say it's all four of those things intertwined. A lot of my, my work and my own personal healing has been more connected to the seasons and to the ground and to the garden at our home and to the land and raking leaves and feeling the bitterness of the colds of, of the winter, just as much as I revel in, this, in the, the feeling of the summer sun on my cheeks. Like there's something of, of being with the world and with the land in a way that brings healing as well. And so I, I, I want to say yes to connection and, it's, and it's, it's the whole that I think um, allows for there to be healing. Um, but there may be parts where you're more connected to the earth than you are to human beings. Be aware of that. Is it easier for you to go to the garden and garden than it is to talk to your husband? That may be something that you want to look at, right? So, so what we're looking for is, is the whole, is the integration of, of what we originally designed for, which was perfect connection with God, self, others, and the earth.
Yeah, there's a difference. Mm -hmm. I know it's confusing, right? It's all about like how and why. So like last night, I got to go out to dinner by myself and it was lovely, right? Like I, I went to Colony Square, yeah, Colony Square by myself. And let me just tell you, just for you guys that don't know, um, Atlanta, you dress up. <laughs> like the amount of sparkles that I saw and like dress, I was like, what is happening? Where am I? Like Seattle, we don't do that. We're like, you know, Birkenstocks in the summer and you know, like those boots. Oh, Doc Martens, we're still there. We're still in the grunge, it's fine. Um, I didn't see Doc Martens or, or uh, Birkenstocks out last night. You guys, you, you dress up good. Wherever I was, it was, it was impressive. But, you know, so, so am I isolating by, by going out and taking myself out to like a beautiful meal and having, you know, a, like an exquisite piece of salmon? No. No. I, I'm, I'm actually like moving towards delight and sensuality and goodness and being in my body and feeding my body, right? Like there's goodness in that. Now, isolation would be, would probably for me in that moment, choosing to like get a pizza from the 7-Eleven and sitting in my room watching HDTV and, do, or, and like eating some ice cream. That, that would have been an isolating choice for me, not one of celebration. They're both by myself. But one is choosing life for me, and one would have been choosing kind of like gross, like just, you know, where you feel bad afterwards. And you're like, oh, I wish I had, that was a bad choice, right? And so, so, it, so I think you have to just look at yourself and be like, what does it look like for me to choose life? And, and sometimes that means taking yourself out to dinner. Sometimes it means uh, it would be really easy for me to take myself out to dinner. I'm going to call a friend and see if they want to join me. Right? But it's all about your story. And I think that's the beautiful thing about this work is that it's all in storied. So there's no like right, this is the right way to do everything. All of you are going to engage with this stuff in a different way because of the particularity of how you've both experienced delight and goodness and the particularity of how you've suffered. And so there is no one way. So as soon as you hear anyone using this material or any other material to give you a formula, run. Because it is all individualized according to the particularity of your story. There's no universal way to heal. There's no universal way to journey towards God. It is all about you understanding you, understanding your story understanding the impact, and then understanding how you've shifted in order to make up for it, right? Is that a little clearer? Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. Okay, um, good. I'm glad you guys are making me work for the money. That's good. Okay. Um, okay, so we're, just to let you know, we're gonna do the archetypes in the afternoon, because we're, we're gonna do this, and then we'll break for lunch, and then, and then we'll get into the archetypes. It'll be, it'll be plenty of time, but it's good that we're, that we're doing this Q&A now, I think. Okay. Um, confronting other people about their impact needs to be done with a lot of wisdom. Um, so when I talk about not saving people from their impact or, or guarding, I actually mean that in your own body and your own mind, for the most part. Um, because oftentimes in our, in our desire to, to save our fathers, our mothers, from the impact that we've had, they've had on us, we block ourselves from the truth. And so it's not always a one-to-one -one correlation that when you unblock yourself, that means you should then go confront your family. Because you know how well that will go. <laughs> if they are people who are open to a concept called rupture and repair, which means that they have enough ego strength, they have enough capacity to handle you telling them your impact, their impact on you, right? Are they people that you know will be able to hold that without either falling apart in fragility or powering up in defending? Neither are gonna go well, right? So my mother, God, God bless her, She's home with my kids right now. It's possible to do all this work and have a real understanding of how your parents harmed you and still love them. But if I confront my mom on anything that, any impact that she's had on me, she will fall apart. All I ever wanted to do was love you. My whole life was about you. I don't understand why you hate me so much. You know, uh, we've done everything for you so that, you, you know, we we're now, we take care of your kids. Like, it, this, that is how that would go. It's not helpful. It's not helpful to her. It's not helpful to me. Um, does that mean that I, that I can't hold boundaries, that I don't understand her impact of me, and then I act differently? I'm less porous with her, right? I have different sorts of boundaries with her. And I've also come to a revelation, re, uh, uh, resignation or a deeper understanding of who she is and the fact that she may never change the side of heaven. And I can release her. And if she ever comes to me and seems a bit more open or curious, I am happy to have that conversation. So I'm not closed off to her, but I'm not going to, to go into that unknowingly or without wisdom. And, and that is the, the, the innocent as a dove and wise as a serpent. So believe people when they tell you who they are. And then also understand that like your desire for reconciliation may be like what you may need to do is grieve the fact that you will never have the mother that you deeply desire and long for. And that is heartbreaking.
and you may never have that this side of heaven, right? And it doesn't mean that there isn't movement or reconciliation, but you have to be aware of someone's heart towards that. You cannot repair with a heart that is not prepared to repent. And repentance isn't falling apart or falling on their sword. Repentance is a steadiness and an ownership of yes. Gosh, that's hard. Yes, I did that. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. So sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, what are your thoughts about, you know, doing it in a virtual environment versus in person? During the pandemic, obviously, it's mm-hmm. pushed to virtual. That's become very convenient. Right. But in general, with your experience, the effect of the storyboard virtually applied. Yep. You know, um, the question is virtual versus in-person work, and, and can you do story work virtually? Um, I, I think... Um, any way this work gets to be done is good. Um, if you can be in a room with people with live bodies, it is amazing. Um, I've seen lives changed virtually. Um, and so the, the question for me would be around, you know, are, is there, are you avoiding bodies or is it because it's like, um, it's, it, it makes it more available? Right, you know, and I think for each of us, if we get to a place where we're, where we realize we're avoiding bodies because of our own anxiety or our own stuff, we may want to lean into that a little bit. Um, but but I think it can happen in really beautiful ways, both ways. I mean, if I had my druthers, we would all be in a room together in person. But virtual is a gift um, because this work is not available all over the country. And so any way you can get access to it, do it. Yep. All right, one more. Oh, nope, we're out of time. Okay. Um, you guys have a great lunch. We're going to be back in an hour and a half. And so just to let you know, I have to jet out at four to go catch a plane. Um, but if you have your book, if you want to talk to me, I will be available for the next 15, 20 minutes. So come and talk now. Um, and then I'll try to be available at the afternoon break as well. Would love to meet you. Thank you. Hour and a half. Oh, do you have an announcement around where to go? There's, there are some dining recommendations that do not involve wearing sparkly clothes. Um, so please check on the little card that was in the journal. There's some dining recommendations uh, close by. We'll see you all back here at 1.30. We're back in... How was your lunch? Good? A lot of you came back. That's good. All right, I'm just, I'm gonna slide myself. I feel like, you know, like a, um, like a seal. <laughs> yeah, you know, like Shamu. You know, like who slides up? Did you guys ever go to SeaWorld before? When, it, when oh, I know, Shamu's an orca. Shamu's an orca. I am from Seattle. We know orcas. 
But you know, when I, we went to SeaWorld as a kid, and that was before we, were, we weren't supposed to like SeaWorld anymore. Um, we liked it, and you would go to the Shamoosh show, and they would slide onto like the thing to take pictures, and, and you know what I mean? That's what I imagine every time I slide up on this thing, where I'm like, Zzz. Hopefully I'm not showing too much. Okay. There are some of you who are very amused and others of you who are not. It's fine. All right. Um, okay, so you had lunch. You're tired now. I know. I know. And I just went to drink a little more coffee, and it was past the point of diminishing return. And so I was like, this is no longer tasting good. You know when something flips? where it's like delicious, 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 and then it's not anymore. That's where I am, which is sad because that means I'm, I'm like, so I'm going to need you guys to rev me up. You good? You good with that? Okay. Whew, this is hard work. It's hard work. Okay. And again, you do not have to do all of this at once. And so take in what's helpful Discard what's not, um, and, then, and then take your time, okay? So we're going to get into what we call the three core wounds this afternoon. And the way that we've set up, you know what archetypes are. Archetypes, although I just heard that, um, who's the princess, Meghan Markle? Is that, she's, so she has a new uh, uh, podcast called Archetypes. Which I was like, oh, I didn't, good. Yay, Megan. I don't know what that means for her, but. Um, she's a princess, so I don't know. It's fine. Um, sorry. You guys, we'll pull it together. Okay, so archetypes. Shh. Archetypes are basically just um, a, a, a universal symbol of, of something that's, that's true in, in most of the world, right? So Jung um, is one of the original people in the psychoanalytic worlds, and he did um, lots of archetypes. But archetypes help us kind of understand something that's difficult to put our heads around, but it gives us language and, and characters that help us place ourselves within a larger story. That's all archetypes are. And so there are, the Bible is filled with archetypes, including the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. When scripture talks about the least of these, they talk about those three things, the orphan, the stranger, and the widow, or the most vulnerable, um, the most exposed, the most hurt within the society, they're the marginalized. And scripture is clear that those are the people we are meant to care for. We're meant to care for and take care of the orphan, the stranger, and the widow. And so oftentimes when we talk about trauma, for me it's very difficult 
to understand things like betrayal and powerlessness and kind of how these emotions or, or things happen. But when I start to think of a story, when I start to think of a character, I can place myself in it a little bit better, right? And so when I talk to you about the, the fairy tale of Snow White <clears throat> and the Seven Dwarves, immediately you have a sense, right? You have a sense of the, the wicked queen, don't you? You have a sense of Snow White. You have a sense of the dwarfs. You have a sense of the Prince Charming that comes in. Although if you, if you read the real fairy tale of Snow White, it's actually called Snow White and the Huntsman. It's far darker than the Disney version, and I like it. <laughs> right? There's far more complexity to it. But every time we're able to place you in to a story, it helps you understand more of your own story. It's why I think it's why God chose to reveal himself through story. Because we can understand something of ourselves more when it's in story version versus principles. Right? So the orphan, the widow, and the stranger, it's clear why those are the, the parts of that culture that were the least cared for, the most vulnerable, and the most needy. So what we're doing in, in this book and, and what Dan and I have been teaching for a long time is that we actually can use that part of scripture in a way that's helpful to understand our own stories and believe that each of us have an orphan wound, a stranger wound, and a widow wound. So that's one side. That's the shalom shattered, shalom sought, the bottom part. Now, it would be easy to leave us there. But that's not where God leaves us. God leaves us towards the redemptive arc of the gospel, not the cheap gospel that skips over the death, the real gospel that goes into the heartache of humanity and doesn't flinch. That offers something of connection and goodness and healing. Then we get to entertain or, or dream of the idea of Sunday. So what am I talking about? Literal Friday in the Easter story the death, Saturday, the waiting. They didn't know that Jesus was going to come back. They're in full despair, right? They've seen violence and, and something awful happen and they feel nervous and they're not sure about their own lives, right? They're in complete and utter despair. They have no idea that Jesus came back. That is the life that God invites us into understanding Saturday, understanding the death. And then when we understand that, we can start to have an imagination for what redemption may look like. Many of us want to cross that. Do you remember this thing, this cross? Like I used to do missions trips at the beach. We were in high school and, 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 and this was your youth pastor. It was great. He's like, hey, look, you know, the way you get to go to the beach with all of your friends is if you pass out tracks for the morning and then you can hang out in the afternoon. Like, fine. 
we're good evangelical kids. I've already told you that it's the 90s. And so we, we did that. And, and so the track we gave out was like, you know, here's your life. Here's God. Here's badness. And here's the cross. And you can walk across and get to God if you pray this prayer. And all will be healed. Well, it doesn't work. So what I'm talking about is the orphan, the widow, the stranger are your death and Saturday stories. So redemption is possible, but not a cheap end run that doesn't actually name or understand what's actually happened. But when we start to do that work, to drop ourselves into, this is called the U diagram, if you guys are at all curious, right? This is something I developed a couple of years ago because a, past, a mega church pastor thought that I was, we were a cult and that his staff was all drinking the Kool-Aid and he was like, what, what are you doing? And this, is, this was my only way that I could explain it to him. <laughs> I was like, this is the way the church does it. This is the way we do it. Like, you have to go down. So the orphan, widow, and the stranger are the ways that we have been harmed. And as we understand those, we then get to have an imagination for redemption. Scripture has three archetypes for what healing and leadership and goodness looks like for his people. The priest, the prophet, and the king or queen. So Jesus is the perfect representation of all three. Jesus is also the perfect representation of the orphan, stranger, and the widow. All three of those core wounds happened to him, and he also moved into a place of being the perfect priest, the perfect prophet, and the perfect king and queen. And so when we talk about the orphan, stranger, and the widow, we're also going to talk about how those parts of us are healed and what does the redemptive arc look like for us as we seek healing. Because this isn't just about being, you know, happier. This is about being the people who can actually help heal a very fragmented and broken world. So we need to be able to move into healing. We can't just stay in the agony forever of our wounds. We have to be able to create imagination of what we're actually called for, called towards, called into, created for. And so those are the things that we're going to be going into today. And, and for some people who have read the book, um, it makes people crazy that I, we don't do orphan, stranger, widow, and then prophet, priest, and queen. We're going to look at the orphan wound, and then we're going to look at the redemption of the orphan in the priest. Okay? This may feel a little confusing. Hang with me. It'll make sense in a moment. But the point is we have all three wounds, and we're also all called to all three stations. We are called to be a priest, a prophet, and a king and queen because we are called to be more like Jesus. So let's drop into the orphan. So this is the core of the orphan. We talked a little bit about the orphan this morning where eventually you stop crying. 
So an orphan truly desires care, rest, and protection, but their harm tells them that this is dangerous and unreliable. So in essence, a baby is born into this world desiring, needing, expecting care. And at some point along the way, they will retool their needs to meet whatever is available to them. This is repeat from this morning. This is the core of the orphan's wound because the orphan has learned that no one is coming. That can be dramatic, extreme, it can be subtle. It doesn't always have to be extreme for it to have extreme consequences. A subtle sense of, I know that my complex needs are not open, are, my, my family is not available to it. That alone can create such a shift in a child's natural state of relating that it can really impact their capacity to love and to be loved as adults. So let's go to the next slide. Okay, so this is how you know if you have an orphan wound. So let's talk about how an orphan presents in their day-to-day -day life. Um, I have an orphan wound. So I wanna tell you about Christmas. Uh, Christmas in my home was incredibly lavish. We had lots of presents, um, even though my parents didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and I knew they didn't have a lot of money. I was very aware of our financial situation and still saw that they were spending tons of money on Christmas because I, I could do the math and I had the Sears catalog. And so Christmas was always this massive pressure for us. Like because I knew they were overextending themselves, they were buying way too much, and I knew my mom was desperate for us to have the perfect Christmas. Good things, right? Lovely. But for me, it set me up because I always felt ambivalent. I couldn't really rest into that moment because I knew the consequences and I understood the extravagance of it and the fact that we couldn't afford it. And, and so it was like, I know, and I also know the demand. Because it's like, if I don't, have these bright eyes and this isn't the perfect Christmas, then I'm going to disappoint my mom and then all the money that they, they spent isn't going to be worth it and then I'm going to ruin everything. So fast forward, I got married in 2011. My husband um, comes home about two weeks from Chris, away from Christmas and I come home a little bit later and I have bags. He's like, what are the bags for? Like, where did, where did you go? I'm like, oh, I went shopping. He's like, oh, well, like for who? For Christmas? I'm like, yeah, yeah, for Christmas. He's like, okay, well, like who are, who, who, who are all the things for though? <laughs> like that's a lot of things from H&M. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, like this one is for my cousin Kate and this one's for my cousin Colleen and this is for my mom. He's like, yeah, that's um, a quarter of a bag. I was like, oh, well, there's a sale. <laughs> and I just 
So I went shopping. He's like, babe, it's like two weeks before Christmas. You, you just went shopping for yourself? I'm like, oh, yeah, because, you know, it's Christmas. He's like, but I'm going to buy you gifts because we're married now, and I get to buy you things. And, like, what if, you, what if I bought you similar things that you just bought for yourself? And I'm like, well, babe, I can't, well, I, sure, maybe, but I, you know, and he's caught me, and I'm like, I don't, and so now I'm caught. I'm like, why do I, what is this? And he's like, babe, what is this? <laughs> and, and, and I stopped, and I'm like, I don't like Christmas. And, and I don't like the vulnerability of waking up and then feeling like I'm supposed to be happy about something that someone else bought for me that I actually feel ambivalent about, so I just go out and buy my own stuff. He's like, okay. <laughs> Should we talk about this? <laughs> I'm like, only if I don't have to take everything back. <laughs> right, but what am I doing? I'm anticipating my own need, and I'm giving it to myself so that I don't have to bear the disappointment of something unknown, namely the fact that my husband and I, ha you know, this is really our first Christmas together, and the Christmas before when we were engaged, he got me Guitar Hero. <laughs> I was in love and engaged and like, oh, babe, Guitar Hero. You know me so well. <laughs> Right, so I had already learned, uh, I love him, I don't want to be disappointed by him, but he, he's not going to buy me good things, and this makes me feel uncomfortable and, and angsty, and so I'm going to go take care of myself, so that regardless of what happens on Christmas morning, I'm like, yay, a crock pot. Legit, got me an Instapot for our anniversary last year. I was like, oh my gosh, we have been married for 12 years. Like, what is wrong with you? He's like, everyone loves Instapot. I was like, you, if you want to cook with this thing, this is all yours. <laughs> Anything that could burn my face off if I don't like unscrew it correctly, it's just not for me. I'm sorry. Right, but this is part of the orphan mentality is that we learned that care is not reliable. And so we figure out how to care for ourselves. I was just saying this at lunch. Worst question ever. Hey, what do you need? Well, Sally, if I knew what I needed, I would have forgotten myself. So I don't know what to tell you. Right? I don't know what I need. And if I did, I would take care of it. So for an orphan, care is very complex. Now imagine what it's like for my husband to be married to an orphan, right? He's like, I'm trying to love you and to care for you and you're not making it very easy. Well, for an orphan, care seems dangerous. 
I want you to think about the last time you received, this is only for those who are maybe orphans, those of you who received an unexpected gift or care or something that someone else offered you without expectation, right? How did you feel? Awkward, why? What's underneath the awkward? Now you owe them something. It's now made you vulnerable to now you owe someone something else that you're now on the hook for or makes you indebted to them. For an orphan, you work really hard to make sure that you're not indebted to anyone. And it's because the places of your story where you actually really needed care set you up for mockery and harm or disappointment or violence. Let's go back to Aiden's story. It's, it's a simple story of Legos, but he's needing something from his mom. He has desire. Eventually, his desire and his need, he'll turn on himself before he'll turn on me. So the heart of the orphan is deeply aware of what they need, but also know that they can only need what they can offer themselves. Or else they're potentially set up for harm. Potentially. An orphan can only need what they can offer themselves because if they receive something from someone else, that it can set them up for vulnerability and then harm. Picture an orphan, right? This is why the archetype is so helpful. An orphan is someone who's lost both parents. They don't have provision. They don't have protection and they're little. Like they can't take care of themselves. So they are relegated to need other adults to step in and, and offer them something, right? But I don't know about you, but I've worked with, I mean, there, there are people in this audience who are actual orphans, who grew up in the foster system, who understand really acutely what it, is, what it feels like to not have actual provision or the protection of parents. Right, and so someone shows up and offers them clothes. Right, something that should be naturally afforded to a child is now a mercy. Do you see the setup for that kid? The humiliation? This was charity. How does a child hold on to their own sense of self and their own goodness and their own sense of belonging when they need someone to have a charitable disposition in order for them to have clothes that fit them? That is heartbreaking. 
the natural inclination of that child is going to be to one, not need, and two, how do you hold on to your own sense of, of autonomy, of goodness, of, of your sense of worth when basic provisions aren't available to you? Right, so we're talking that there's physical, being physically orphaned, you also can be emotionally orphaned as well. So what happens when your basic need for connection, for attunement, for care, for someone reading your face is not afforded to you? You steal up and you stop needing. And this is where a lot of grooming happens. So for, for a child that's exposed and has no protection or provision, right, someone comes along and offers them something of goodness. Well, they've learned that nothing comes for free, consciously or subconsciously, because all of a sudden when dad did pay attention, right, it was when he had gotten into a fight with mom and then all of a sudden, he needed you know, the sweet little attention of his sweet little daughter. So now you become ambivalent. You become at war with your need for care, your desire for care, because as soon as you feel that need, it opens you up for exposure. So as an adult, no thank you. Thanks, but no thanks. Right? But then you're set up for disconnection. You're set up to not be able to be in relationship, to be able to receive and give. Oftentimes, orphans are pretty good at giving, actually, as long as they are kind of having the upper hand. Someone just laughed. I appreciate that. They're like, yeah, huh? Right? But, but also, do you understand the quotient? So, like, when you're in a conversation with someone, and you realize you you're actually have a lot of need, you, you need to talk about something, do you have an internal clock that tells you how long you've been talking about yourself? Before it goes off and you say, oh, <clears throat> been 20 minutes, that's too much. I'm gonna flip it and ask, now I'm gonna ask them questions about them. Make sure it's even. Even with a therapist. Well, a lot of times orphans love therapy because at least they know they're paying them. They could rest, it's transactional. It's like, look, I'm paying you for this and I'm gonna take up my whole time, right? But they don't do that with friends, they don't do that with colleagues because they feel very self-conscious afterwards. So, you refuse rest, comfort, care, and you're committed to control. An orphan is gonna to need to be in control of their environment to make sure that everything is anticipated and safe, right? Because they've learned that if they're not in anticipation, if they don't know that something is safe, then it just leaves them for more vulnerability and harm. Okay. Um, last year, we decided that it was a really good idea to go to Banff to take a six-year-old and an eight-year-old on a ski trip in Canada in the middle of a pandemic. 
I got seduced because of Instagram. I blame everything on Instagram. Somehow they read my mind and they knew. And so they sent me these things, right? Because it's like creepy witchcraft <laughs> slash algorithms, all the same. And, and, and so I started to get these pop-ups that were like, if you book now 50% off your housing, your airfare, and your ski rentals, and kids can ski free, and, you know, just, but you, but, so I'm like, you know, still in my fantasy world of like, you know, we can make it through this pandemic and still have good things. And, and, and also, you know, we hadn't been outside with my kids in a long time. And so I also thought we were all just fine. Um, so I booked us this trip right before Christmas. Cause I'm like, this is going to be great. So believe it or not, this is not actually, this is the setup to the story, if that tells you anything. So we go skiing. Have any of you tried to take little kids skiing? Yeah, only a few of you because the rest of you are sane. Okay, so my kids, we're not, they're not skiers. This is their first time. And we have to take buses because we're in Canada. And, and so we're like, you know, pulling things up and like I'm carrying like multiple skis and all this stuff and we're get hustling to get them, you know, and, and we have to make it on time because they have ski school, which basically in Canada, the people who teach skiing all have British accents or Australian accents. It's like ski school Mary Poppins. <laughs> and they're like welcoming my kids in and they're leaving and we're like, this is amazing. This is magical. Okay, so we do this for two days and then all of a sudden my older kiddo is like, I'm done with the little skiing. And he points and is like, I want to go up there. This is the gondola, right? Because this is, this is Rocky Mountain skiing. This is a serious business. He's like, I want to go up the gondola. And my husband's like, well, I mean, you know, maybe they're ready. I'm like, they are not ready. No, no like no one is ready. We, we don't want to go back to ski school. We want to go in the gondola. We're not going back, right? So it's, we're breaking down. I'm like trying to figure out like, should I be cool mom? You know, cool mom of boys where we're like, yeah, we can do hard things. It's okay. Or, you know, and so I'm like, fine, you know, we're all together. We can do this. Like, I'm not as concerned about my, my bigger kid, but my five-year-old um, at that point, I'm con he, he's not ready. So I'm like, this is going to be a nightmare. Like, it's fine. So we go up to the top. Well, first of all, so we get in line for this gondola and all of a sudden my five-year-old is like, mom, I got to poop. I'm like, okay. So we're at the bottom. So we hike up, you know, I'm carrying his skis and my skis and pulling him along and we get up there and we take everything off. And then there's pooping and then there's putting everything back on. And, and by that point, everyone in our crowd is like all the way at the front of the gondola because it's a long line. And my husband's waving at me. He's like, we're going without you. Just meet us at the top. I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, babe, I love you. I'm so brave. It's going to be fine. So, I, so we, I am I'm down there with Aiden. We're at the bottom of the gondola. And I'm like, buddy, it's a really long way up. There's no way down but down. Like, there's nowhere to go once we get up there except down the hill on your skis. Are you sure you want to do this? because we don't have to. I'll buy you hot chocolate, <laughs> candy, a moose stuffy. Like, I don't know, what can I buy you that will keep us from this night? It's like, no, mom, I wanna go. I wanna, I wanna be like Liam. Okay, 
So I get him on the gondola. We go up. I'm still like, buddy, we can stay in this gondola. We can just keep going around. Because we're going up, and I'm seeing this. And I'm like, these are not easy slopes. And the, and the Rockies, green are not green. They're not green slopes. They are hard. And I'm like, oh, I just, this is a nightmare. So we get to the top. He gets out. He skis down maybe three feet, four feet, wipes out, is crying, is like, Mom, I changed my mind. But we're too far down to get back up to the gondola. And I'm, and I'm like, buddy, no one is coming. <laughs> this is it. Like, I don't know what to tell you. We have to get down. And he's like, I can't do it, mom. I'm too scared. I'm like, I know, buddy. I hear you. Um, this was probably a mistake. As I'm texting my husband, where the mm, are you? <laughs> like, okay. So we sit there, and, and, and he's like, where are the ski patrol? Let's call. I was like, buddy, they're, unless we are dying, they're not coming. Like, there is literally, we can take off our skis and hike back that whole mountain to get to the top of the gondola, or I will put you in between my skis, and I will ski you down. He's like, okay. Literally 30 minutes of me. People are stopping. Like, are you guys okay? I'm like, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I, and secretly, I'm like, will someone come get us? <laughs> no? Okay, great. Okay. So I put him in between my skis, and it is, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an okay, I'm a decent skier, right? Like, I'm really comfortable on the blues. Like, I've got some good jams going on, but like, you know, I'm not awesome. So I put him in between, and he's big enough, and then I hold him with my little, what are those, poles, and just stick him in there, and I'm like, all right, you know, we're, we're going to do this. And it is steep, and, and I'm like almost falling and almost dying, and I'm like, this is, this is my test of whether or not I can handle the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> because if I can do this, the mama's got it. Like, I can carry you down a mountain. I can carry you across, like, Switzerland, like the sound of music. Like, we can flee, right? So I'm like, mm, we're doing this, you know. Like, every once in a while, my legs are burning so bad that I have to stop and be like, Mama needs a minute, you know. And then I'm taking pictures for Instagram. Like, look at our great ski trip. So eventually, and so, literally me still calling my husband, finally I get in touch with him. He's, he's like, where are you? I was like, where are you? <laughs> I'm here. I'm halfway down the mountain with our son. He's like, get down to this slope. We'll wait for you here. It's going to be fine. So I get down, I get, and I see my husband, Will, and I just release my son. And I was like, go. <laughs> and it's like kind of, so he gets some steam going, but I'm like, I don't even care what happens. Like this, and, and Will is going, what are you doing? I'm like, he's yours now. <laughs> And I ski over to my eight-year-old and I'm like, let's go. All right. <laughs> okay, so this is Canada. We barely get home. We barely get home. And it's the day before Christmas. We turn it around real fast for the magical Christmas that we're all supposed to have. And we're like, okay, I'm, I'm committed. Do you hear, Orphan? Now, we get home and all of a sudden my husband, the day after Christmas, comes downstairs and is like, ah, oh, this really bad headache. I've never felt anything like this before. Like, what is happening? Go upstairs right now. I'm getting you a COVID test. He has COVID. 
And then it storms in Seattle. We're down to like negative 17 degrees. Our pipes burst. We can't go anywhere or get any supplies because everything is shut down. Because in Seattle, kind of like Atlanta, if it snows, you wait it out until it thaws. There's no equipment, right? So this is after our stunningly failed Christmas ski trip experiment. And now I come home and everything is falling apart. And so what do I do? I galvanize <laughs> and I handle the crap out of it. And I'm like, oh, I will be making homemade soup for my husband and then everything will be clean and candles will be lit and every, I mean, I'm like the pioneer woman. I'm going out and I'm collecting the, the firewood on the side of the house in the snow. We have chickens and, and, and everything is frozen because we don't do frozen in Seattle and so they don't have any water. So I'm walking underneath them with a bowl of water to make sure the chickens don't die. I mean, I'm like, we are, I'm doing this and it's gonna be awesome. Like I'm gonna win at this because I don't need anything and we're gonna be fine and we're gonna conquer this. Sound familiar? But then what happened? My son, I already had COVID. My son, I did. Otherwise, I probably would have gotten it too, and that would have been a terrible story as well. My son, Liam, got COVID. And it was before we had been able to get them vaccinated. And I was like, oh, you know, kids don't really get that sick. It's going to be fine. Liam got sick. There is nothing like watching your kiddo be gravely ill. And so I'm watching him deteriorate hour after hour after hour. I can't get out of the house. I can't leave my youngest one with my husband. I can't drive on the roads in Seattle because everything's shut down. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And so I muster, and I'm sitting over him, but I don't, I, there's something about this illness in particular, or, or even just like when a kid gets sick like that, where he's listless. And it's like all the life force has just been drained out of his body, and he's standing there, or sitting there on the couch, just staring off in space, like can't even focus on me. And I'm texting my neighbors, who's a doctor, and saying like, when do I bring him to the hospital? How do I know if he's going to be okay? For an orphan to meet a moment where you actually have need is terrifying. And it's need that you can't give yourself. And so sitting there with Liam, there was one night where we were about six hours away from having to take him to the hospital because he couldn't keep anything down, including liquid. So he was dehydrated and we weren't sure 
like how long we should push his little body until we get him hooked up into an IV. And so again, as a mom, you're like, I just did this ski trip and exposed my kid to COVID for what? And we weren't able to get him vaccinated. And what if he dies and this is on us because we were too lazy or didn't get it in in time or did this trip? Like everything in you is spiraling, right? And so finally one night when I was up with him all night, just watching him to make sure that I didn't have to take him to the emergency room like right away, I went up to my room with my husband and I just broke down. And I was like, what if he, what are we gonna do? What if he doesn't make it? What would we do? I don't know that I could live through that. And he sat on the edge of the bed and held me. Just held me and said, I don't know that it's gonna be okay but I love you and I love him and we can pray. So what does an orphan need? Let's go to the next slide. An orphan needs attunement. That's what I received in that moment from my husband. An orphan is so capable of caring for themselves until they're not. We're not designed to do it alone. And the person that I met, even just last year in this story, the reason why this work is important is because I also knew in that moment, oh, I am powering up, I'm galvanizing, and my orphan is taking over. And it's hard, right? Because part of me is grateful. Thank God I'm so capable of taking care of myself and others. And the cost of being a lone soldier, carrying on and making sure that everyone survives at some point breaks down. So for me, when that broke down, my husband was able to be there even though he was still sick, he was able to pull me close to him and hold me and comfort me and attune to all of the parts that were all over the place in those moments. It doesn't always take a lot, but for an orphan to also be able to be vulnerable enough. So my repentance was to go up into that room and admit to my husband that I wasn't okay and that I was scared and I needed comfort, I needed care and I needed rest. And he was able to offer that to me. The orphan is fragmented. The orphan does not have a sense of the full story because it's too much but the gift of attunement and that is that it allows the story to come back together. It allows the fullness of what you suffered to be not only understood, but then not suffered alone. I needed my husband to be in that story with me, even though I really didn't. 
right? I feel less vulnerable, safer, more confident when I can just do it alone. But we're not built for that. So how do we both invite other people into these spaces with us and how do we step into these places on other people's behalf? We need attunement. We need connection. It's not a radical thing that my husband did or said, but it soothed and comforted my orphan heart and gave it a place to drop and to rest and to grieve. And I was able to sob and let out all of the fear, knowing that it's not better. We still didn't know what the outcome would be. He was fine. But we didn't know it then. That was Saturday. An orphan needs to be tended to because that's what they needed in the beginning too. They just didn't receive it. And so as you contend with your own orphan heart, will you contend with the fact that you really do need care? And that it's not just up to other people to come and find you. You have to be able to be found. You have to be willing and able to risk the messiness, the sloppiness of other people caring for you in a way that may not be perfect. I have to learn how to love and bear and play with my husband's terrible gifts. <laughs> and be willing to say, actually, I don't love that. Can we take it back and get something else? Right? But offer him a chance. Orphans, it's so easy for you just to close it up. And then when someone else, like you'll give someone one shot, maybe two. And when they mess up, when they don't handle you in the way that you really desire to be handled, it's gone, you're gone. And I get it. But you have to keep the dance because there's no one who's gonna love you perfectly. No one. Not even God this, this, this side of heaven because there's a veil between us, right? But it doesn't mean that we're not meant to try. And that's really what attunement is. Will you try? Even if it's sloppy, even if it's messy, even if you, you make mistakes, right? Will we continue to try to make the effort to both be available and make ourselves available to others? That's the hope. And what does that usher us into? Well, what I've just described is actually the heart of the priest. The priest is the part of my husband, Will, that sat with me in that bed and did not deny the lament, did not deny the reality of the heartache that was going on in our family, but was also able to hold me and usher me into a space of grief and recognition that this is where we are right now and all we can do is hold on to one another. The role of the priest is to hear and engage the story of the community. So when we talk about the archetype of the priest, I want us to think about our internal priest that may or may not be active, right? Some of you may look at this and say, yes, this is the role I play in my world and my family, this is very familiar. 
Well, we need priests around us to help usher us into healing. We also need our own internal priest to be activated if it isn't already. Again, we are meant to be all three. So the priest helps the community look back and see themes, but it allows for lament and gratitude to be present. But do you see if the heart of the orphan is activated and unhealed, the orphan will look at their past, at their name with contempt and denial. They don't want to know the truth of their whole story because it's too painful, it's too fragmented. The priest offers us spaces for there to be defragmentation of our stories. It's what you do when you sit in a story group. You're activating your priestly care, your capacity to hold grief, lament, orientation. This is what's true. There's so many great priestly um, characters. Can you guys think of any from, from like movies? Anyone? All right, my favorite is Rafiki from The Lion King, right? And what does he do to Simba? You guys remember this? this I know this, again, dates me. This is apparently my most recent movie. <laughs> right, so Simba forgets his name. He's orphaned. He's pushed out. He runs, and he forgets who he is, which means he cannot actually move into his true calling because he for, he's forgotten his name, he's forgotten his history, and he's misremembered what's true because of how his abuser told him, right? So Scar tells him that his, the death of his father is his fault, and he believes it, so he runs. Well, what does Rafiki do when he finds him? Do you remember? He knocks him over the head and says what? Remember who you are. That's the role of the priest. They're meant to cup your face and bring you back and say, remember who you are. It's so beautiful. It's so needed. It's so rare. It's what our parents are meant to do. Our parents are meant to name us. But so often what we're having to deal with is how we have been misnamed. So who are the people in your lives who can cup your face and say, remember who you are? That's the role. And there's part of you that needs to be able to do that internally. Like, do you know who you are? Do you know your goodness, your beauty, your gifting, the light that you bring into a room? Do you know where you envy and where you harm? Do you know who you are? Do you know your story? And you cannot move into calling, into who you're created to be, unless you understand your story, unless you understand what's true about you. And as you recognize who you are, you'll be able to grieve both where that's been marred, where that's been lost, and then it can be rebirthed. Oftentimes the role of priest is misunderstood in a community and often seen as not important as some of the others. It's very subtle, isn't it? It's 
very grounded. It's connected to the earth. And it's difficult because it means that we have to be slow and willing to give ourselves over to grief and create enough space to stop running. It's really important right now because the priest is also the one who returns the story. And right now we are in a war for who gets to tell the story. Be aware of who you believe the telling. Who have we decided shouldn't tell the story because it's too painful, it's too revealing? A priestly community will be willing to hear all the pain, all the heartache, all the trauma, both that it's caused and then been a part of, but we often only believe the stories of the majority. Isn't that the phrase, the conqueror is the one who gets to write the history? So I think the invitation of the true priest is that we start to open ourselves up to more of the story and be aware of who are we allowing to tell our stories and who should be telling them. Which stories are we ignoring, both in our own lives and our culture, and which stories do we want to dismiss because they're too difficult? There's a lot of power in getting to tell the story that should not be taken lightly. And we need to really pay attention to who we're listening to and who we're not. So, I'm going to pause here, and then we're going to take a little bit of a break, and then we're going to come back and do the last two archetypes, and then we'll have a little time for Q&A. Get some coffee, or if not, water, and then we'll see you back here in 10 minutes. I felt that one. How you guys doing? You holding up? All right, ready for two more? Okay. <laughs> okay. Usually this one, Stranger, is what Dan teaches on. He wrote it in the book, and there's a reason for that, and it's because I, I was a very good kid like very good. And, um, and so all, none of my, all my stories are orphan stories. None of them are stranger stories. <laughs> um, but I am married to a stranger. And so I have come to understand the war of the stranger in a way that feels very tender to me because I've seen firsthand how the stranger wound sets you up for such a war. So let's jump in. The stranger is at war because they see what could be and have been rendered powerless to bring redemption. 
So for a lot of you who have this stranger wound, you uh, were not favored in your family because you were the one who saw through all the things that were wrong. So a stranger is actually more attuned to beauty and delight than all the other archetypes. Because the stranger, their heart, sees the possibility. It sees the world in technicolor. It understands what it could look like if we just did it the right way. And the stranger is born believing that if the only reason that it's not that way is because maybe they just don't know it yet and they, and they just need me to tell them. <laughs> so a stranger in their most innocent part of their heart will bring themselves, their exuberance, their, their drama, their zest, all that they feel, all their big emotions, they'll bring it to their family expecting, this is a gift. I'm offering you a gift. It's not that dad's angry, it's that he just doesn't know that the Bible says that you shouldn't use your anger in the way that he does, and so I'm gonna tell him. Like, do you see the innocence? Because oftentimes strangers, because they're such an against energy, they're so misunderstood. So let's go to the stranger side, Elliot. The stranger realizes that the world that they live in isn't fond of truth isn't fond of repentance, isn't fond of what should be, what could be. It's hard for me to teach on stranger without giving away the end, which is these are the prophets in our midst. And, and to understand that the heart of the stranger is actually the heart of the prophet in some ways makes it almost easier to think about, doesn't it? because you start to see that the against feeling that you get from a stranger is actually deep heartbreak. They're deeply heartbroken over a world that could be so beautiful, so good. The strangers are the ones who see sensuality and life and life force and beauty and death. They see it all. And, and in the beginning, they'll put their hand to trying to fix it. They'll put their hand at believing that maybe they have something to offer that can help. But in a family that doesn't want to be exposed, in a culture, in a world, in a church that doesn't want to be exposed, the voice of the stranger is like fingernails down a chalkboard. And the stranger gets named as too much, as dramatic. Why can't you just be like your sister? Why are you so emotional? 
Why do you need to wear that makeup or dress, like again, this is aging me, but like, is emo still a thing? I don't know. Okay, no? Fine. <laughs> right, I mean, in my day, it's like, you know, you, the strangers were expressing themselves. They're, they're, they become the rebellious ones. They're the ones who will not just comply. The orphans often comply because we're more interested in control and everything being like ordered and good. The stranger is like, uh, right? No, thank you. Because what it costs me to comply is that you will consume all of, of my essence, my being, and you'll use it for your own glory. So no, I'm not complying. I was working with a client who, um, and again, just so you know, the stories, when I say I'm working with a client, it's an amalgamation of lots of different stories, and so I'm not actually talking about a specific person, just so that you know in terms of confidentiality. But all stories are all stories. So, work with the client. And um, the client, had, uh, he, was, he was very um, sensitive as a kid, very emotional, very attuned, very aware of the world around him, very able to care and, and to connect, right? And so his mother, who was um, bordered on borderline personality disorder, saw that he was the child of her children that could most care for her. And so she would go to him because he knew he could read her moods. He understood her broodiness, her, the, you know, when she was about to kind of go over a cliff. And he had enough capacity to kind of be with her in that and know how to bring her back from the edge. So he could tell that she was, you know, angry and banging pots and pans around. And he knew that he had the capacity to go in and tend to her and he could abate the storm. Right? And he did that for a while as a child. And then eventually, you know, he could feel her um, tentacles. Wanting him, needing him. He knew something was off. She was using him as her son in a way that he could tell wasn't okay. And it made him, ugh. You know that feeling? that you don't even have words for, that's kind of like, ooh. He would feel that as a boy when he could tell that she was acting up and she was expectant of him to come in and care for her. So what did he start doing? Rebelling. He started to grow his hair out and wear super baggy clothes and smoke and drink and do drugs and made himself... unwanted by her. So do you see how oftentimes the rebellious one, right, is often playing something out within the family system? So for this boy, instead of being able to like actually move towards health and his goodness and what he was actually seeing in the world, right? And so at first he started to talk to her and say, mom, I don't think, you know, Shouldn't you be asking dad? Or mom, I don't, I don't think, I, I don't want to take care of you. Like I can see you, but I don't. And, and again, it would have been the words of a 10, 11-year-old boy. That wouldn't have sounded like that, but it had been something 
along the lines of, Mom, I, I see what's happening here. I don't like it, and I don't want it. Or she would have felt his kind of moving away a little bit when she went to, to touch him. His frozenness, because he could tell that there was something off between them. Right? So then she started to activate around him. What's wrong with you? Why don't you like me the way that you used to? What did I do to you? So he starts to feel her kind of like anger at him because he's no longer available to her. And he goes further and further and deeper and deeper into this sense of rebellion and pushing against the family system because any effort that he made to connect to his dad, to bring him in, to do any of this stuff just ended in silence and ended in people just assuming that he was the bad seed. But it's far darker than that, isn't it? And it often is. But for the stranger, right, they're prone to anger, bitterness, doubt, revenge. And the only way that they can gain their power back is through indifference. Because oftentimes a stranger will give their good gifts, assuming that someone will take it, someone will understand what to do with what they're seeing. And then when they're denied, when they're named as the troublemaker, their only way to regain power and to deal with their heartbrokenness is by indifference. Fine. You don't want me here. I don't want to be here. So that's how it starts. And then later on down the line, the stranger is then seeing things in the world. And oftentimes a stranger in a community where they're not actually moving towards their healingness of, that they need for to be the prophet when they're not moving in that direction, there's a sense of they're going to stand and tell you everything that's wrong. And then when you don't listen, that's your fault. And then they're going to blow it up on their way out the door. Well, that's a very young, adolescent heart of a brokenhearted stranger. It's not actually the developed heart of a prophet who understands the complexity and knows that they're meant to love the community that they're meant to serve. But for a stranger to understand their role in this world, they have to understand that they see things differently than the other archetypes. You feel more. It's like you have live nerve endings all over your body if you're honest. And so the problem with the stranger is that they have to figure out how to handle that. How do you handle the energy that no one else seems to, to be aware of in the world? How do you handle the sense of injustice and the indifference in the world and the fact that people are just turning a blind eye? How do you bear what you see? These are the struggling artists who end up in depression and anxiety and addiction, suicide ideation, because they just don't know how to bear the world that they see that doesn't seem to be able or willing to get any better. So they give themselves over to numbing and addiction because they cannot bear what they see. So instead of feeling the live energy that's pulsating and moving through their bodies and learning how to use it or control it or soothe it, they numb it because it's too much. It's too much for them to bear 
and there has not been anyone around them who is willing to help because they've been named the troublemaker. They're the ones who sit in the back of the car on a Sunday morning. So this is us, my, my brother is the stranger, I'm the orphan. My parents would die if they ever heard this talk. Um, my mom asked, she's like, why don't you ever let me come to one of your conferences? I love you, mom. No, I don't, I don't want to dishonor them. I'm also just not ready for that conversation. So, neither are they. So, my brother and I would sit in the back of the car in our minivan, in our Astro, like, it was like 1988 Astro minivan. Was that a thing? Yeah, it's like red. It was awesome. So, We'd sit back there, and right before, you know, we knew all morning. My dad and my dad had been raging at my mom. Uh, my mom was furious at him, but also unwilling to really engage. Uh, my role in my family was to engage my dad and to soothe his rage and soothe his anger and stand in between him and the rest of the family. My mom would then abdicate, and then later be able to collude with me around how mean and awful my dad was. That was that was the role. My brother would sit in the back and just be like, you guys are insane, right? Angry, furious, but unwilling to engage, right? So we would be in, in the car on our way to church, and my, my dad would be raging, my, all this would be playing out, and before we got out of the car, it was understood, we pull it together, and my dad goes in, and he's a deacon, and my mom's singing, and... I, this is, I mean, this is a normal story. I was like, okay, I know my role. I can play. Because I don't want to handle the reality that my family is insanely broken, and I actually feel dysregulated too, because my regulation comes by being able to regulate his rage. I'm good. Who's not good in the car? My brother. My brother would sit in the back and just be like, F you. I'm not playing this role. I'm not playing this game. No. So he would sit in, church, in, in the car and be like, I'm not getting out. And he'd be like, you know, you have to get out. Fine. So then he'd come and they'd sit in the back of the church you know, with his hat and just like slunk down and just pissed. And then he'd grab all the other kids who were strangers and then gather them to the embarrassment and dismay of my family and the other pastors, right? And then, and then they all got to be known as the bad kids. I was the good kid. He was the bad kid. But what's true about him he was willing to own the truth about my family far before I ever was. But because of that, he got relegated to the back. He got kicked out. And that's what happens to strangers within the scripture context. They're the ones who are diseased. They're the ones who are the untouchables. They're the ones who are outside the city gates, who are not meant to be loved, who are meant to be disconnected because they're bad. 
that's what we do to people who are telling us things we don't want to hear. And that's what was done to us when we said things that other people didn't want to hear. But for the heart of the stranger to heal, they must understand that they're actually far more connected to beauty and light than they are to darkness. And that's why it's so painful. Because if they were, had just dark hearts, they wouldn't even care to rebel. It takes a lot of energy. They still wanted someone to listen. And they still do. These are the folks who are going to write the songs that are going to usher us into art, into movies, into film, into books. These are the folks that are going to tell the truth before we're ready to hear it. So what will we do with the stranger part of our own hearts and what will we do with the strangers in our midst? What sort of imagination will we have for their redemption? Because they can be snarly little suckers. <laughs> Married to one, he's hard. He's beautiful and feels so much and is hard for me because I'm like, can't you just pull it together? Why all the angst? He's like, you teach on this. I'm like, I understand. <laughs> right? Part of my healing around even my own orphan activated is being able to reconcile with the stranger. Because the stranger actually longed for my own heart to be healed as well. My brother would have longed for my heart to be available to him to be able to grieve and lament over the reality of what it was like to live in our family. For the cortisol rushes, for the adrenaline, for the, the, the activated systems that we had all the time of never knowing when my dad was going to be okay or if he was gonna be raged, enraged. That sets kids up for hypervigilance or coping through addiction, fatalism, and numbing. That's the route my brother went. So let's talk about the healing of the stranger. This is the best. The stranger's heart needs containment. Really, containment is saying, hey, I get that you're angry and you're not wrong, but I'm going to need to take the grenade out of your hands. You get to be angry. You get to rage. You get to lament. But I'm not going to let you self-destruct. I'm going to hold the grenade. Do you see the honor in that? You're not saying you were wrong or you didn't see well. You're saying, no, you were right. But you're also not letting them, like, flood the edges of the river. 
You're saying, hey, you've got a lot of water. If this river isn't going to hold it, then we need to build some levees. But let's be active in helping you learn how to titrate all that you see, all that you feel, and help you learn how to move with your gifting with honor and respect, not with destruction and despair. Do you see where the prophet meets the priest? Do you know who you are? You are good, but you also have a propensity to blow things up. And that's not helpful. So, some things need to be blown up. Some families need a big bomb of truth and we just need to deal with the debris and, and hang out there for a while and then call it, you know, a, a demilitarized zone, right? I mean, the, it, it's, it's not to say, it's, it's that you have to be able to employ the wisdom and the capacity to have choice. What we're working with here is how to stop being compulsive around your critique. So if you're a stranger, you're going to feel a lot, you're going to see a lot. A lot of your growth is going to be to learn how to use it well. How do you hold it inside of your body? How do you offer yourself kindness? So Elliot, let's go to the next slide. Because the prophet is meant to incite and provoke and intensify desire. But they do that often by showing what's wrong. So my favorite story of a good prophet is Nathan and David. Right, so Nathan goes to David after Bathsheba, tells him a story because he knows that David is not going to do well with a one-on-one, one-to-one direct um, confrontation. So he tells him a story. And David's enraged. This man deserves to die. Yes, he does. That man is you. It's a brilliant set of wisdom. Because what does he know about David? He knows that David is actually a man of integrity, regardless of all of the sin and the failure that he's done. He actually knows that he has a deep heart of repentance. And so he knows that if he goes after the part of David's heart that actually understands justice, understands mercy, then David will repent. It's brilliant. It's the wisdom required of the prophets. Do you know who you're meant to be a prophetic voice to? Then you need to understand their heart and their goodness and also where they desperately need to repent and own their impact and own what they've done. But you're doing that through desire and you're calling to what could be and you're creating a vision for the future. And anytime you create a vision for the future, you're always going to expose the present. Know that, right? That's why prophets are snarly in our organizations. It's like you want a prophet at the table, you also know that any good prophet is going to expose the current structures and, and expose what could be better. It's very painful. 
it's very needed. Right? But the prophet has to understand their power and how to internally regulate their impulse to just tell everyone what they see. Right? And so the beauty of that prophetic voice is that they can learn to regulate. The way they learn to regulate is by being radically committed to being connected to beauty and life. If you are only connected to what's wrong, you're going to question why the world is worth saving in the first place. So a prophet, a stranger, they have to be connected to art, to beauty, to nature, to the goodness of the world around them, to things that bring their heart life. Or else they will be given over to despair. There is stunning beauty in this world. And prophets, you will do remarkable things if you are both connected to the beauty and the brokenness equally. One or the other, and it's distortion. Very difficult to say when there are some of you out there who are so entrenched in systems that are so broken and not for you. But my guess is that you still see beauty, even if it's haunting. You still see possibility. You still see hope. Will you hold on to that and trust that there's a place for the vision that you see? The ultimate role of the prophet is to draw forth passion. So many of our lives, so much of the life of the stranger is numbing and deadening what we feel inside. But I really believe that the way towards healing is by coming back alive in our own bodies. I ran this retreat a couple of weekends ago called um, Sacred Interruption. And if you're interested in, it's a women's retreat and it's incredible with um, uh, Heather Stringer and Christy Bauman and Tracy Johnson. And we just did our pilot one this, two weekends ago, Knoxville. And as I was praying about this retreat, um, actually praying slash dancing to Shania Twain in my boots in a loft by myself in Nashville. <laughs> right? It was really fun. I got to spend three days by myself in Nashville. My husband was like, are you going to be okay with that much time? I was like, uh-huh. I love you, I will miss you, and I will be a better wife when I get home. So as I'm there and I'm, and I'm literally dancing, and I don't know if you guys have danced in a while, I haven't, um, but I, like, and I used to run these camps where we did line dancing every Wednesday night with the campers, so I still have some line dancing in my bones. And so this song came up from Shania Twinks, I watched the documentary and just, I mean, can't even, okay. So anyways, so I'm, I'm doing this stupid line dance by myself, literally in the middle of this amazing loft, and all I could hear in my body and my soul was Jesus being like, if women and men were alive in their bodies, you could change the world. I was like, that's so dumb. That's embarrassing. That's so grandiose. And yet, as I thought about it, I'm like, 
I think a huge piece of evil, evil's work in this world is, is deadening us to the beauty, to the heartbreak, to the goodness, to the life. And so much of this work is bringing yourself back alive. But if you don't think you can handle the brokenness, then, then you're always going to feel that threat of stay dead. Or if you don't feel like you can handle the sensation of your body alive and the sensuality and your arousal come back online, your eroticism. Yes, I'm saying those words from the front of a church, but this is bodies. Like this is what we're meant for. This is what we're designed for. We're designed to be alive. And God made us with nerve endings that are very much still there. But we've deadened them because it's easier. And we are not, people are not drawn to us when we're dead. When, when we're one or two drinks in, even though we could be the life of the party, there's something dead behind your eyes, isn't there? When I've just binge-watched all of Love is Blind on Netflix. You guys, I'm talking about someone else, not me. You can feel it. It's like, and it's not all bad, right? It's just that sense of, man, I can handle where I need to numb out and where I can give myself over to those things as long as I'm equally committed to feeling alive and dancing in my boots alone in Nashville. That's, that's what it means for us to be alive, to be reawakened, and that's the role of the prophet. But oftentimes that will feel so dangerous to us. And it also brings us to the widow. So, now the widow is a tougher category because it feels like such an adult, doesn't it? I feel like orphan feels like a kid and stranger kind of feels like that teenager energy and then widow feels like an adult, right? And, and, and it is for the most part, you know, it's, a, it's an archetype of loss of a spouse. Now, some of you have actually lost spouses and so I don't want to ever, um, you know, in the same way that there are people who have actually lost parents. I, I, I never want to um, downplay the tragedy and the trauma of actually being widowed. And there's a reason that it's an archetype in the Bible because in the, in the time that the, that scripture was written, to be a woman who's lost the protection of her husband would mean destitution and probably exploitation. Women had no way of protecting themselves or getting property passed down to them. There, there was no way for them to give themselves their own provision once their husband was gone. So when God in scripture talks about the widow, it is a very dangerous position to be in the position of a widow. And so I, I want to hold that, and I want to talk about what, what we mean by the core wound of widow. Each of us have experienced something of death after we have trusted. And so the widow has known something of love, something of provision, something of connection and the, and the deep sense of my life makes sense. 
there's goodness, there's order, there's protection, there's love. There's a giving and receiving, and there's something sweet about it. And then they experience the death. And what happens when we lose something that we've trusted, that we've given ourselves over to, we then are at war with a sense of we now understand the cost of loving and then losing that love. We now understand the pain of giving ourselves to something completely and then having it be taken away. And for a child, that can happen in a lot of different ways. That can happen through divorce. That can happen through the death of a family member. That can happen through a devastating move where you went from your best friends to then all of a sudden you know, being bullied at your new school. That can happen through a beloved uncle grooming you over time and then sexually exploiting you and abusing you. It can happen all sorts of ways, but it's the loss of delight, of honor. You can have the, a death happen because, you know, as you were a young, delightful little girl, your mom dressed you up and loved you and cherished you and built you up, but then also at the same time, you were then also beloved by your dad. And you and your dad started to have a really special relationship. And then all of a sudden, you started to get older and more beautiful. And now all of a sudden, you're set up against your mom to be her rival. And you can feel her turning her back on you because you're more lovely than she was. You have more life force. Your father prefers you to her. That's a widow wound. Let's go to the next slide. So a widow deeply desires love and mutuality, but has been wounded. And the idea of offering yourself in that vulnerability again feels threatening and dangerous. So for the widow, when they realize the cost of love, the cost of vulnerability, the cost of being really interconnected and trusting and being with, and then understanding that, that that left you vulnerable to harm, to jealousy, to marring. You close yourself down, right? And so you've made yourself impenetrable to vulnerability, and you've protected yourself from that part of you that's porous, that, that's tender, and you've decided that that part is no longer available to anyone else. Different than the orphan. Do you, see, do you feel how it's different? Because in some ways, the orphan has an imagination of love and provision. But the widow actually has an active memory of it. And so, and you, and you see this anywhere, right? Like, so anyone who's built an organization and has lost the organization or, or has departed, the idea of building again, very risky, because you know what can go wrong now. Someone who's been married and had a really messy divorce and, and something awful, 
there is this sense of like, I'm better off alone. I'm good. I'm not gonna open myself up to that sort of love, to that vulnerability, because the grief is too intense. Someone who's lost a child. These are all widow wounds that are active in your current life. So the widow is always at this, this threshold of will I love again? Will I open myself up again? Will I be tender and vulnerable, even though that means that the armor comes off and the knife can go in more quickly? We all know that feeling and that risk. The problem is that we are meant to be loved. We are meant to love others. We are meant to risk and create. We are meant to build. We are meant to move back into connection. We are meant to give and receive pleasure. That's what we're meant for. But oftentimes the widow, especially when you're talking about, you know, a young girl, a young boy who has been set up, you don't understand the core wound of widow unless you understand the word envy. As I was teaching at Certificate 2 a, couple, a while ago when it was in Chicago, and I had a dear friend who's a dear friend now, I didn't know him then, stand up and say, um, you know, you're talking a lot about envy. I don't have anyone that envies me in my life. And I looked at him and I was like, Scott, aren't you a pastor? <laughs> He's like, yeah. I'm like, everyone envies you. It's not a matter of one, it's a matter of many. And when you don't come through for them in the way that they want, they're gonna try to kill you. We know that's true, or maybe we don't. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. That's what we do, right? But envy doesn't make any sense unless we're connected to the beauty and the goodness that our life force naturally brings into the world. And so for many of you, that's not part of your story. When you think about yourself, you consider yourself to be kind of meek or dowdy or unremarkable or never having actually lived up to your full potential, blah, 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 whatever, not sure. But none of it is true. When we are born and brought into this world, we are all created with a life force that was specifically given to us by the creator of the universe to bring something of God into this world. And it doesn't mean that everyone should be, you know, like Taylor Swift and starlets, but like, how, like, do you make a really good tomato soup? How are you specifically meant to bring life and beauty and creativity into this world? Because where you have that creative life force that is so unique to you is absolutely the place where evil has attacked it and tried to mar it, specifically through envy and harm. When we are born into our families, 
Children expose death. New concept? Children expose what is dead within the family, within the relationship between the parents. Expose the death uh, that, that the mother has already given herself over to, to know, like, you know, whatever ambition or hope or dreams that she had had, it's now gone. Or now all of her uh, energy and, and identity is now wrapped up into who you tell her she is as your mother. Like children will automatically bring the essence of their life force to bear inside of a family. And oftentimes that it exposes something that parents do not want to contend with. And so they kill it off. Slightly, subconsciously, some overtly, some covertly. But do you know your own delight? Do you know the beauty that you bring to this earth? Do you know the goodness that you offer? Because if you don't, you won't understand how people have tried to mar it and strip it from you. When people encounter beauty, gifting, um, life force, energy, goodness, what happens? at our basis, like, you know, crudest level. I'm not talking about our evolved selves that do something better. Two things happen. We either covet the beauty. We want it. We want to consume it. We want to merge with it. We want it to do something for us. Or we want to kill it so it doesn't expose us or make us look less than. That's what we do when we see beauty. In our, our most base kind of sin-filled selves, like it's, it's not to say that that's our only option, but we have to understand that that's part of what we do. When you see, you know, a woman walking down the street and you look at her and think, oh, I wish I had that body. What are you doing? Yeah, you're envying her but you're also judging and bringing contempt onto your own heart. So the same is true for what's happened to you and your stories and the way that you can start to access your widow wound is where was your life force a threat to your family? Where was it both they wanted to consume and, 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 and bring it, cultivate it? Some of you, your life force was seen as like the only life of the family. And so they put you in every sport and you were the all-star and the quarterback and all the things. And you became the star of the family and the whole life force of the family revolved around you. Well, that's a heck of a lot of pressure. <laughs> Not all of us have that story. And most of us have different stories altogether. The point is, what is yours? And if you have not come to have more of an imagination of the beauty that you bring, then where you've been envied won't make any sense to you. But again, the way that you were envied or stripped of those places, it's like the Cinderella story, right? Like, Cinderella is a remarkable character. 
who who is keeping the the life force of of the the house alive and she's doing all of the the manual labor and and when she realizes that she can go to the ball if she just does all of her work she does that work plus some and still manages to to have a dress right in the original fairy tale there's no mice she finds her mother's dress in a trunk right it's her heritage and when she comes downstairs what happens she's stripped because all of a sudden, her beauty, her, her vitality, her sense of life, and her gifting is seen, and it exposes the stepsisters. It exposes the mother. So do you know in your own life where you have been covertly or overtly stripped of something that felt threatening because of something that you're actually meant to bring into this world? So as we talk about widow, will you wonder about where something has been taken from you that's actually part of what God wants to restore? What is the part of your heart that died a long time ago, or so you think, that God actually wants to to grab the dry bones and bring life back into it, right? We all have those places in our lives. So what happens when we start to do that work? Let's go to the next slide. We start to learn that there's the possibility of rupture and repair. The widow needs to understand that death and knows. Death is inevitable. There there are three... um, uh, there's this author, his name is uh, Francis Weller. And he's written an amazing book called The Wild Edges of Sorrow. If you want an amazing book on grief, pick it up. It is amazing. He has these gates of grief. And that three of the gates go really well with what we've talked about today. One is that you will never be loved the way that you are meant to be loved. You won't. It's sad and awful. And it's true. It doesn't mean there isn't goodness. There doesn't mean there isn't love. But, but you'll never be loved fully the way that you're meant to this side of heaven. Two, the world is far more beautiful and far more broken than we could ever imagine. Can we reconcile with the fact that the, the world, the earth is groaning and that we feel it in our bones because at our ba- at our, there is a part of us that's still connected to shalom and the rhythm of the earth that we feel in our bodies because of how we were created. The third one that goes to here is that everything we love will die. I was supposed to end the conference on a high note. But this is just what's true. So if we know that death is inevitable, all seasons will die. Even the best ones, the ones that bring the most life, will end. I am, um, you know, I told you I have a six-year-old, and um, I now have a nine-year-old as well, and so I have recognized that there is a shelf life to when they can sleep on you. My nine-year-old is like up to here, which is insane. Um, but my six-year-old can still fit in the nook. Do you guys know the nook? Like it's like if they curl up. And they can still, like, fit in there. 
And so we were at um, the Chicago airport. We were flying into Atlanta. We were supposed to have a direct flight. Uh, it got the summer how, you know, airlines were like bananas. No one, I don't know what happened. It just all broke down. Um, so they, they canceled our direct flight and they routed us through Chicago from Seattle to Chicago to get to Atlanta. And we had an eight hour layover in Chicago. So we had to wake up at like four in the morning Seattle time and then sit. And I don't know if you guys have been to Chicago, O'Hare. It's just not awesome. It's a little bit to me like LaGuardia or Miami. Like it's just, it's always under construction and it's just not awesome. So we do the best that we can and you know, the kids are exhausted and we're going to see grandparents and it's fine. You know, um, this is, these are the days where they're like, are we just allowed to watch screens all day? I'm like, yes. Like, put on the headphones, I will download you 20 hours. <laughs> right? And so we're sitting in, you know, in those seats that just aren't comfortable. And, I, and, I, and my, my kiddo, Aiden, who's, who's little, curls up on my lap and puts his head down and falls asleep. And he's, he's not little, but I could, he could still fit in the nook. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, I can't remember the last time that he fell asleep on me. And then I thought, oh my gosh, this is probably the last time. He'll probably never crawl up in my lap and sleep on me again in the same way. And I sat there and I held him and my arms fell asleep and my legs fell asleep and I did not care. My husband was like, do you want me to move? I'm like, absolutely, do not touch this child. <laughs> but it, it's that moment where you realize this is sweet so sweet, and it is heartbreaking. So part of, of the core of the widow is learning. I can sink into this moment and revel in it and, and feel in every ounce of my body the, cord, uh, the, the oxytocin running through my body and, 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 and the connection between me and my sweet boy and I can also acknowledge that this is a grief moment because he will probably never do this again. That's the power of understanding rupture and repair. That I can love him, I can love that, and I also know that I can let him go when he wakes up and not demand a do-over. I can let that moment be with all of its sweetness and all of its agony. And I am strong enough and whole enough that I can experience all of it all at once. I can love that moment and know that there will be other moments that are different, that will never be that moment again. But the widow has to learn that death is not the end of the story. That it is yet an invitation 
to learning how to hold grief, how to hold life, and how to hold it in tension, knowing that it's often a mix between the two. Let's go to the next slide. And that ushers you into the queen and the king. The role of the king and the queen is to hold the present moment. You create, I'm going to do the, first, the last one last. You can suffer the reality of life and death, and you can hold both, knowing that neither is escapable. And that what does it mean to set a table that you know Judas will be present? What does it mean to risk even though you understand the devastation of loss? What does it mean to love a child sitting on your lap and sleeping, knowing that you may never experience that again? Oh, it's such heartbreak and such beauty all at once. But the queen and king is meant to stay in that present and offer the boundaries, the capacity to hold on to things that would ask you to go here or here. The queen and king says no. There is a third way. And it also allows the priest and the prophet to work within the community without having to take on the weight of the crown. It's not a dictatorship. It's a sense of, I will own the decisions that are made and bear the consequences. It is a leadership that we could all use right now because it asks us to stay in the complexity, but it also asks us to make choices that are for the good of the whole. And it asks us to stay in the present and honor the voice of the prophet, honor the pace and the slowness of the priest, and know that all are welcome at the table. The queen and the king set the table for God to come in and speak to us. You need all three. Because without the queen, there's not a safe context for dreams. There's not a safe context for knowing that like there are boundaries and there are rules and there are structures that allow us to continue to move. And so for those of you who are leaders, you understand this role and the importance of it, right? But let me push you a little bit further because those of you who are like, well, you know, I, I, I'm not necessarily in a leadership position or I'm a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, you know this too. Because you don't have to go far to think about your last family vacation where everyone is dying for someone to make a decision. <laughs> and no one wants to make the decision, why? Pressure. And what happens if it goes wrong? Your it's your fault. We want to abdicate. We don't want to be able to say, yes, you can do this, or no, you cannot. Because it sets you up for envy if it goes well, because now you know, you're the one who made the decision that's super successful. For, for murder if it doesn't. 
blame. And yet there's a weight to it, a need for it with humility, with presence, with love. A good king or queen will listen and create space for those around them to be heard. But you cannot do that if you're in chaos. There's no space if you send the queen to the gallows and the priests and the prophets are running the kingdom. It's chaos because the priest is going to want to slow all the way down and not make any decisions and just care for the people. And the prophet is going to be like, we need to move. The queen and the king are the ones who are going, okay. (laughs) I hear you. But do you see how the widow has to contend with her heart that says, no, I will not love, I will not create, I will not risk. Because this is a risky position. And you will always be set up for envy when you put yourself out there to lead or to take a stand. We're living in a culture that loves people to stick their necks out and then chop them off. So how do we start to understand the role of all three together? So we've talked about all three archetypes, but it's really the connection between the three, both in our own bodies, and also we're gonna have different ones that we're stronger at or weaker at that also we need to do some work around. So I am a strong queen, this is what I do. I've always done because of my story, right? But the last three years, my repentance has been to grow my priest because it was imbalanced. There was a sense of of my queen was exhausted, it was overused, I was exploiting her and ignoring the need for the vulnerability of the widow, right? Like I was was cozying up and letting my widow in some ways rule instead of the more redeemed queen. So my repentance was taking a step back and going back into the earth, going back into the garden going back into the life of my family. For some of you, your repentance is going to be to step in because you spent a lot of time tending to the ground, but now it's your time to fly. Both are needed. And if you find that one is more natural, but you feel tired or it's overused, can you consider where that part of your story is being exploited and and needs maybe some recovery time? And will you consider that all three were meant to be connected together like the Trinity? Jesus was all three, the perfect priest, the perfect prophet, the perfect king, And, and we're meant to be like Jesus. So we're meant to fulfill these stations and these roles in our community, in our own hearts, with our spouses, with our children. And also it's okay if there's one that's stronger than the other. It's also okay if you feel strong in all three or two or one. There's no formula. But follow the part of your heart that has felt pricked. Is there an archetype where it it brought up longing where you were like, oh, there's something about the queen 
that I know is in me. But, but I feel, you know, like I've been in um, sackcloth digging in the dirt for so many years. How do I put on my regal robe? Be curious about that. Follow that thread. Be curious about the widow wounds that maybe need to be connected to in order for your queen to reemerge. The hope of all of this material, again, isn't to give you a Myers-Briggs of psychology where you can just figure out who you are so that you can know your map of how to heal. It would be nice. I would be very rich if I could do that. Some people have tried, and they've gotten very rich, but it's all a joke. Because if we're honest, none of us have the same story and none of us have the same pathway towards redemption. So as you leave, my hope is that you would just pay attention and be curious and, and, and wonder, what is Jesus calling you towards? What part of your story did you think, oh, that, that orphan, that story about that orphan, that, that really connected to something in me, or I was absolutely the stranger growing up. Where have you turned on your heart? And what stories are starting to emerge for you? More than likely, you've had one or two come up as I've been talking. All you have to do is follow the thread. You don't need five threads. I really believe that God works the way that you need him to work on your behalf. So follow that one thread. Don't get overwhelmed. You're okay just the one. And then as you pull on that one thread, it's going to bring you to other threads and other threads and more work and then be able to rest and enjoy the table that your queens and kings will set out for you and feast. It's all about the cycles of healing, the cycles and the seasons in our lives. And, not, and some of them are fallow and some of them are active. Do you know that I think it's true, 90% of the earth's growth happens within like six weeks. That's a ton of growth that happens really quickly during the spring. The rest of the time, the earth is needing to rest in order to be able to then amp up and do that for six weeks and then, and then be done. So can you even trust, are you in a fallow season where you need to cook and write and read and go dormant a little bit? Are you in an active season where you feel this and your heart is pounding and you're like, I wanna do this? Then follow that lead. There are ways for you to connect to this community and do story work here. You can go to the Allender Center website and see the offerings we have there. You can go to my website at kathylorzell.com and you can see my offerings there. There are ways that you can get connected into this work. It doesn't mean that all of you are meant to go do the certificate trainings at the Allender Center, but some of you should. So will you listen to where your heart is pricked and follow that lead? That's my only ask. Healing doesn't need to be overwhelming. It can just be diligent work that we do for the long haul. But each of us are at different states.
And so, we're going to end and then transition to a little bit of Q&A if you have questions around next steps or information that you've gotten. But more than anything, again, will you be curious about where God is moving your heart? And will you be bold enough to listen and kind enough to do it without demand? The end. <laughs> I'm going to get water. All right, for those of you who need to go, that's okay. For those of you who have questions, let's hear it. Yes? I've got a, I've got a question. Sure. Can you offer some guidelines, recommendations for discerning this work? This work, it can be done in journals, in journals. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I would say um, uh, start somewhere and then see where you get stuck. Because the, the deeper wounds, the, different, the deeper things that are going to um, come up for you as you get started, I think are revealed as you lean into it. And, and if you're tuned and kind of settled into your own experience as you lean in, you're going to have a sense of, this is big, I need help. This is, this is more, I, I, and so this is a great marker. As you're going into stories, you see something clearly, 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 and then all of a sudden it's like a fog. If when you're considering doing work around a story and you hit that fog, that is where you've traumatically mind mapped. And you're probably going to need help understanding what that is. And, a, and someone who's really good at being able to sit with you in some of that story detail and understand the themes that may be going on for you. Um, you know, but, but if you just start with any story and you start writing it out, again, if, if you write it out and then all of a sudden you're, you're dysregulated, you, you know, you can't go to work, like, you probably need help. You probably need a group. You probably need a therapist. You probably need a different sort of container. Um, there are some stories that I've done really sweet work on, on my own, um, but oftentimes they're stories that have been seen by other people first. Or they're, they're more recent stories that I have a sense of what actually happened and what went on that I can, that Jesus can really meet me in. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Okay. Yep. Uh, yeah.
That is amazing. It's the Friends theme song. No shame. I loved it. I loved it. Um, uh, it is very rare that you get to be a healthy prophet within your own family. And I, and I say that, and I'm like, is that really true? I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true. And that's heartbreaking. Um, the, the, the prophetic voice can enter into a family when there is humility and the capacity to be able to see one's own log in their own eye. And not for, like, you know, in terms of both, both you as the prophet and your family. Like, you know, so it's not to say that there may not be imagination for that sort of work to be done. And, and, but, oh my gosh, be so wise and careful about that because you're going to be dysregulated in a way that, is, that it, it's almost impossible to do good prophetic work um, because you're too close to it. Um, and I, I will always leave the door open for people's hearts to be open, but I, I would want you to just be very aware of are their hearts actually open or are you wanting to exercise your impulse to, ha to bring a prophetic voice to people you love even though it's not gonna go well? That's where I would really have a regulation around your own impulsivity. And, and what's that about for you, right? Um, so I would, I would make sure you do really deep work around that stuff and make sure you have a really clear sense of your own mind um, before you, you enter into that sort of relationship or role with your family. Is that, I feel bad saying that. It feels really hopeless, but I think it's wise. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, next question. Oh, yep. Um, so hard, but always put your own mask on first. I mean, you can't help anyone if, if you're not clear in your own oxygen. Um, and so, you know, you can invite other people into this journey with you, and, and there's, there's a generosity, a generativity to being able to, to have groups. To, to, it's not to say you have to be finished before you start to invite other people. Just make sure that your impulse to want to bring other people in doesn't keep you from your own work. Because especially if someone has that priest sort of care, like, you know, they, they want to kind of create the, or even the, the queen king, right? You, you can keep yourself from doing some of your own depth work by, by doing the more public-facing stuff. Yes, of 
course. Absolutely. Seasons, yep. Different relationships. Mm -hmm. um, we could be characteristic of any of these yep. times. So yep. As we go through the book, what, how do you, what do you recommend in terms of thinking about how we can actually do the entire process of giving mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a great question. And also a good reminder that if I hadn't already said it, um, we have all three wounds. Um, and different ones can be activated at different times in our lives. And so, you know, I've, I've struggled with that stranger piece a lot more lately than I ever have as I've taken off the crown, right? Um, and so that's, it, it's, what I would say in terms of going into this and, and reading the book is what feels most live now? And if, if that's a current story, then, then work on that story. A every story, especially current ones that you're dealing with, will always be portal stories to other stories. And, and so I, I'm never afraid. People are like, well, you know, I, 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 I want to tell you this story, but it's, it happened a couple months ago. It's like, fine. You can talk, we can start there, but, but to realize that there's no way we're not getting back into a family of origin story <laughs> because every story goes back. And, and is a portal to, to other things because our trauma repeats itself until it's resolved. So, um, so I would say whatever part pricks you right now, that's where you start. And, and then later something else will hit you. Um, like I, I've had to do a lot of work around my, around my widow about two years ago um, and that was work I'd never done before. I'd done a ton of work around my orphan. And all of a sudden, the widow was whew, right there. I was like, oh, mama. OK. Does that help? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, you telling me. I know. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I mean, the fact that you're here and that you're already doing this work to some degree or another, or at least curious, it has already changed the trajectory of your family. Yeah. Yeah. And, and kids, you know, we're, all of my book proceeds are already in a fund that are going towards my kids' therapy. Fine. Like I don't actually care about college. I I do care about them. <laughs> so I I just think to to allow your heart to rest, and and then also again be curious. Like they, when you're present, when you're attuned, when you're caring, and and then when you're not, to be able to recover. Because what what they need is a mom who who can bear her own sin. <laughs> And recover, and then and then try again, and be present again, and and we're so resilient 
Um, and, and so even to just trust like your mama heart and, and when you're off balance, then, then to, to pay attention and, and figure out like, well, what do I need in order to rebalance again? But you're here. Yeah. Okay. That was fun. It was like a lot of energy right over there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think understanding your tolerance of, of grief. Uh, how, how much will you linger? That, that, that tells me how familiar you are with death and suffering. And if we've never lingered or borne our own grief, then we'll, we won't be able to linger for other people either. But there, there is beauty in lingering, allowing space and time without demand. So, mm-hmm. we have time for one more question. So we'll do yours, and then that's it. Oh gosh, pick one. We actually write about that at the end of the book. It's, yeah, it's uh, Lori Proctor, who's an expert in the Enneagram, um, did kind of uh, work on how Allender stuff and our methodology connects to the Enneagram. But what I would say personally is that this stuff um, uh, connects to all of it. You know, because even as a three, like I, I have a hard time with grief too, and, and like staying, staying long enough to let things sink in because that feels too vulnerable to me and too exposing, right? I just want to keep going. Um, you know, so I, I would say for all of us, like Enneagram is incredibly helpful until it's not. This work is incredibly helpful until it's not. And so, it, it, so I think the, the invitation would be to play with it and, and to see how it dances, see how it intersects, and, but then also not need it to layer perfectly or, or line up. You know, like all of it is us trying our best to figure out how to make any sense at all around the human experience <laughs> because we're desperate to, to have something that tells us a little bit more about ourselves. Um, and, and I get that until it becomes dogmatic. And, and no tool should be, should be used in, in any sort of dogmatic way, right? Um, and these are all just expressions of it, but I, I found the Enneagram to be exceedingly helpful um, to, to my, my chagrin because Dan and I were both like, meh, Enneagram, and then over COVID, I started doing more reading about it, and now I'm like, well, that's very helpful. <laughs> you know, and I'm like sending all the three stuff to my husband, like, babe, uh, I actually, I am, I just need to find my heart, you know. <laughs> Anyways, so I, I you know, I think, I think it's, a, it's a beautiful tool. Um, and I think, I think the orphan widow stranger shows up in every category of the Enneagram. 
Okay, you guys, thank you for being here. Kathy, thank you so much. And if you are curious, if you belong to Trinity, if, if you attend here um, and are curious about what we do for story groups, um, just send me an email. Uh, my email is just jason at atltrinity.org, and I can give you more information. Uh, but God bless you guys. I, this is a lot to carry. So go move your bodies and um, have a wonderful rest of your Saturday.